VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and thank you very much for tuning into the program. Today is Tuesday, April the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is back in the producer's chair after a richly deserved break. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial 709-273-5211 or elsewhere it's toll free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM which is 8626. So this is the time of year, we call it the spring, but it's also pothole season. So with a bit of warmer temperatures over the weekend and not so bad yesterday, you're going to see more and more potholes pop up. And so be very aware of where you are, even on my route that I take to work. And I take the same route every day. Two or three new ones, a couple of them pretty expensive potholes that could swallow up your little Prius or something. So look out. All right, let's stick with the ice and the thaw and the freeze. Brad Goju and his team, of course, up in Ottawa at the Worlds, Yesterday, they had their hands full with Japan. Japan came in at 3-0, and Guzhu at 2-2, but the poise played really well, especially Nichols and Guzhu, although he can't leave out Herndon and uh, Walker up front, but got a 6-3 victory, puts us in pretty good shape, top six qualifier for the playoffs. So as Guzhu said yesterday, going into the match against Japan, it's a probably a must-win field from here on out, top six in the playoffs. Speaking of Japan, I want to say congratulations to local marathoner Marianne Griffin. She just started to run about a decade ago, and she's very recently crossed the finish line. In her age group, she came in 13th out of hundreds in her age group to complete all six world major marathons. This one was in Tokyo. So she's run in Boston, London, Berlin, New York, Chicago, and now in Japan. So congratulations to Marianne Griffin. Pretty cool accomplishment. Uh, what do we got here? Uh, the folks out at White Hills. They put in a massive effort to be in contention to win the McKenzie Top Peak Award. It comes with a $100,000 prize, and they got it. So bravo to the folks at White Hills. There's certainly some infrastructure that could use a bit of TLC, so that's a lovely injection of cash, $100,000. So good for them and good on them. Another quick one sticking with the ice. It was today, back in 1986, at the great one. Wayne Gretzky recorded his 213th point of the season, breaking his own record of 212. Of course, went down to finish that year with 215. You know, records are made to be broken, but I don't know, man. I think you can put that one to bed. For context, the very best player in the world right now is Conor McDavid. And he is in the conversation for best players of all time. That's just my own opinion. He's got 146 points this year. Incredible stuff. Got five games remaining. So let's say he hits 150. 215 is a long way down that road. So congratulations to the great one. Still remember those days. Boy, oh, boy. Uh, Let's keep going. So back in the news is the whole issue regarding school buses and the arbitrary 1.6 kilometers from school. This story basically comes to bear because there's an apartment complex about 1.5 kilometers from St. Andrew's School. There's some 30 newcomer families inside. And, of course, having to trek over, the parents, by and large, don't have the ability to drive them. So it's either pick up the entire family to walk to school, and it's a good long trek in the winter months for sure. But we've had this conversation every single year, certainly since I've been sitting in this chair. And is it really time to figure this out once and for all? So especially for children in the K-6 system, should we be just passing them on the road? They live 1.5 kilometers from the front door and the bus drives right past them? Because we do know, even if the sidewalks have been done and oftentimes not really fit to safely navigate, so what are we doing? And this is not just in the city. This is the rule uh, across the province. 
So they call Inside 1.6 the Family Responsibility Zone. You know, you don't put price tags on the safety of our children. You know, even if we talk about what is sometimes a bit of a mess in the school bus system, but what would be a price tag to expand the busing system to pick up all K-12s on their way to school? Just sounds like it makes sense. I know it comes with some additional layer of expense. What that is, we don't know. But there you go. You want to take it on? Because as soon as that made the news yesterday, it uh, piqued the interest of enough listeners and emailers to me that I thought I'd bring it up because it's ongoing and it's been a forever confusion, confusing issue. But anyway, you want to take it on. I see the school in Mainland has reopened after some concerns regarding the water quality in that community. The province says they've done repeated, I think it's four tests, to ensure the water is safe to drink, and it has come up positive each time, or safe each time. So there was concerns with turbidity and otherwise, and color. So the school has not been reopened. It's managed by the Francophone District, as a matter of fact. It's the Col St. Anne. So... Anything regarding the mainland issue, whether it be World Energy GH2 or the uh, local service district not willing to accept some independent outside assessment of exactly what's going on with the water supply? Anyway, let's take it on. We're also continuing to look for updates regarding issues regarding violence and safety in the province of schools. And this one cannot be discussed enough, as far as I can tell. So, of course, the headline regarding the Criminal activity and the brutal beating doled out of PwC has spurred this conversation on. There were commissioners, apparently, on the school grounds last week to monitor the goings-on. But inside the schools is one thing, the playground and the uh, schoolyard, quite another, or the playground. So we'll put that back out there uh, for your consideration. And a little bit more brighter note inside the school. The province just went through the Eastern Newfoundland Science and Technology Fair over this weekend. So the science fair, for some students, is a very daunting task. It's certainly an additional workload for the science teachers or department heads, but it is a great time in the school year, and it is really extraordinary. I've been invited to judge a couple of these science fairs and heritage fairs over the years, and it's remarkable just how in tune and inquisitive and curious some of the students are with the projects they bring forward. Now, some take it easy and do the old examination of the eyeball or the smoking machine, whatever the case may be. So whether these projects included food comparisons, the so-called normal product, the regular product versus the light or the diet, and the real implications therein. And then, of course, lots of projects regarding computer sciences, STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. So congratulations to all who participated. And there's going to be a handful of them. Actually, that's more. It's 10. They're making their way to the national competition, which takes place in Edmonton from the middle of May 14th to the 19th. So congratulations to Sophia Zhang, Alpita Patro, Ryan Cullen, Orpa Hallider, Tanish Bat, Jude uh, Almutawa, and Emily Baker, Haley Robson, Simon Penny, and Haley House, those last four representing Labrador, Western, and Central. Congratulations to you all. I'm sure your projects were stellar. Good luck and safe travels on your way to Edmonton for the Nationals. And you never know. One of these competitors, whether from this province or elsewhere across the country, might be the next Jeremy Hansen. Who's he? Jeremy Hansen is one of four astronauts that will be part of NASA's Artemis II mission. So he's a 47-year-old. He joins Christina Koch, Victor Glover, and Reed Wiseman as they make their way to the moon. So we haven't been to or around the moon since uh, 1972. So this Artemis mission is going to take place in 2025. 
the Orion capsule in Artemis 1 travelled 434,523 kilometres from Earth. That's the farthest any human-rated spacecraft has travelled since the f- over 400,000 kilometres during the Apollo 13 mission. So how about that? Pretty cool stuff for Jeremy Hansen. Going to space, back to the moon we go. Okay, let's keep going. Back to the moon. This story here, now, I spoke about it the other day. There was reference in the most recent federal budget about hydroelectricity, expansion of the grid, and opportunities to expand markets, and they said it was the maritime loop. Of course, when the federal government first announced this, it was very clearly the Atlantic loop. My thoughts were that, how can you possibly have a loop of renewables, including mostly hydro, if this province is not included? You know, considering the fact Churchill Falls, which... We all know the Hydro-Quebec issue and contract therein. But we're left out, apparently. We were involved, senior executives, uh, rank and file for, pardon me, the executives at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, part of the initial conversations. The federal government then came back and said, well, we haven't completed our due diligence, and so this 5 or $6 billion project is going to be on hold for some amount of time. Now we're told that we're out. So the Deputy Prime Minister, the Minister of Finance, Christopher Freeland, is going to be here tomorrow. I think Ben Murphy has her in the morning. It'll be sure nice to know exactly what went on here. So if they make references to the fact that we've got a grid that's not up to the task for sufficient and reliable transmission of power, all right, I guess some of that might be our own doing with the Labrador Island Link and its persistent failures, even though I don't know what the status is of the 700 megawatt testing. But we're out. You know, it was never clear exactly what the hierarchy would be, but we know the biggest bullies in the room are Hydro-Quebec, and they have substantial assets. Let's just do a little bit of comparison here. Hydro-Quebec is not only the largest utility in this country, but one of the largest in North America. They have assets worth over $82 billion. They generate capacity at 37,000 megawatts compared to us. We generate 8,000 megawatts generating capacity assets, which I use loosely, at about $20 billion. So whether or not there was ever going to be a real economic upside, whether or not we were going to increase access to markets and the potential for some more projects, notably Gull Island, but now apparently we are out, and so is PEI. So for New Brunswick and for Nova Scotia, much of the work and some of the justification initially for Muskrat was in an effort to help the country reach the net zero by 2030. And, of course, Nova Scotia with still a firm reliance on coal. We have done them a solid. And as a result, there's been federal loan guarantees or what have you. But they're in. New Brunswick was in. Quebec is in. We're out. Not sure what to make of that, but I'll also add to that. I wonder what that means for the ongoing discussions regarding 2041. Does it give us more power or leverage, or has it soured the negotiations in full? And you know full well the entitlement coming from the province of Quebec, even though we must work with them. Whether or not we like it, it's a geographical issue, not only regarding hydro, but minerals and the like. So you wonder what kind of conversations took place between the federal government and Premier Legault to see us on the outside looking in. So I think that's a curious and I don't think a good development at this point, but we'll see what more information we can get, especially when Finance Minister Christopher Freeland joins the program tomorrow. All right, stick with some of these industrial-related conversations. Trades NL, if they had their druthers, all the top sides work for the Beta Nord project would be done here. There is some doubt, given the comments coming from Equinor themselves, talking about, you know, doubling the amount of subsea work and increased benefits to the province. And it very much sounded like the top sides work would go elsewhere, likely to Asia. 
There's a Canadian engineering company with a local partner here, Hatch, but KBR. They've really received a letter of intent from Equinor Canada regarding front-end engineering design. So, the, you know, the acronym being FEED. For the top sides, for the Beta Nord FPSO. They did the pre-feed engineering carried out in 2022, so they've got this letter of intent. What that means beyond the jobs regarding the engineering, we don't know. It does sound and feel good that Canadian companies are involved. They both have offices right here in St. John's, both KBR and Hatch. But doing the engineering doesn't ensure that the jobs actually stay here in the province. And again, we'll ask the question. If you're a tradesperson, of course, you think some of the primary concern for the provincial government should be jobs. Others will say, well, maybe it's investment in R&D and in post-secondary institutions. Maybe it's an increased royalty, whatever the case may be. But I suppose uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. People who are in the position with the training, the accreditation to get a job, I'm sure the jobs are their number one focus. But some pre-feed engineering work, now some additional front-end engineering design, and it's an LOI at this point, so no signatures on dotted lines, but it's interesting to say the very least. And speaking of minerals, in known relationship with Quebec. The Labrador Trough has immense value. So we're going to speak with a representative from Search Minerals because they're a company dealing with critical minerals about opportunities and what additional opportunities, financial and otherwise, have come from the most recent federal budget. Tax credits for clean manufacturing and, yes, some replication or an attempt to mimic the United States of America's Inflation Reduction Act because we need to be in this ballgame. So Leo Power is going to join us, uh, I think, around the 10 o'clock hour to talk about opportunities for critical minerals, not just for search, but for the industry at large here in Newfoundland and Labrador. You want to take it on? We can do it. All right, so not surprisingly, in a fairly animated sitting in the House of Assembly yesterday, the PCs and the NDP both in told us that they intended to vote against provincial budget. Now, there's no surprise here, right? So what was cautious optimism from both parties the Thursday that the budget was tabled. But now, of course, the politics comes to bear. So they'll say there's glaring gaps and no real plan, whether it be in health care and otherwise. Minister Cody would stand and say that, you know, in essence, the parties are voting against X, Y, and Z. You know, family care units, infrastructure, and what have you. So this simply is the politics of it all. Now, inside opposition parties' concerns regarding formal plans to improve the healthcare system and to deal with the emergency room backlogs, the surgical backlogs, and concerns of long-term care, they're all real. What the solutions are, I'm not entirely sure, because if you look at some of the most recent announcements, uh, thousands of dollars to recruit, retain uh, registered nurses and LPNs and personal care attendants to work in long-term care. You know, where you are and your level of health concern would be very personal. So you might need a family doctor. You might need a pharmacy closer to where you live. But I think if we're going to try to deal with the emergency room congestion, surgical backlogs and postponements, it really does require a keen focus on long-term care. You know, in addition to working on aging in place, what have you, if you just look at the long-term care issue, how many people are in a bed that could be occupied by someone who just came out of surgery? Then we can talk about there's no firm staffing ratio in a long-term care facility. So without a one-size-fits-all, something that we can use as a benchmark, we're going to continue to have these problems. The most recent story comes from Pleasantville Towers. And, of course, it's, I think, the largest long-term care facility in the province. So here we go. Here's some numbers once again for context. And this is only in one home. 
At this facility, there's 460 beds. Only 404 are currently occupied. There's 481 nursing, nursing positions staffed, but there's 150 vacant positions right there in that one facility. The last number we heard is that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 empty long-term care beds. So that has implications throughout. If you just factor in the demographic age of the province and the need to get it right, if we can satisfy the needs of staffing and the safety and the dignified surroundings uh, for the residents of long-term care, it will have an immediate ripple effect to improve things down the line in healthcare. So this is going to be tricky. You know, Yvette Coffey, who we're also going to speak with this morning, says the bonuses obviously are not enough. But what we need to know is exactly what's required, whether it be to level the playing field with these private traveling nurses or what this burnout, how that can be settled or solved or at least eased, and we're not 100% sure, add to it the expansion of the registered nurses' uh, scope of practice yesterday to, to prescribe uh, for to prescribe uh, pharmaceuticals and to order diagnostic testing, referrals to specialists. I'm curious as to how many registered nurses will take up the additional training required to be prescribing drugs. And does that simply just add to the workload? It's an interesting balance that, you know, I'm, so, I'm sure some RNs would absolutely get involved. Now, there's an announcement coming today about the, I believe, scope of practice for the province's pharmacists. Because that's another area which has never really made sense as to why they can't do what, they're allowed, what they should be allowed to do. I spoke with a friend of mine yesterday, Frank. He takes one pill and one pill only. It's for his gout. Been taking it for years and years and years. There's no sound reason why Frank simply can't go to the pharmacist and get that prescription refilled. And if there is a reason that I'm missing, please fill me in. But So Frank has to go to another healthcare professional, his doctor, and to get this prescription for the only pill he takes. So there's no potential negative counteraction between one drug or another. He takes one pill for his gout. And so why shouldn't he be able to get that done and get it right? Okay. Uh, how are we doing on the telephone this morning, David, to get going? It's good to see Dave back. All right. A couple of quickies. So it wasn't so long ago that we saw on display the legal weapons uh, adding to the largest weapon seizure in the province. So the fellow responsible, 42-year-old, his name is Scott Waterman, he's pled guilty to the charges he faced. Now, initially, there were some 141 charges. He's pled guilty to seven. So inside of this hall of weapons, there were silencers and 3D printers to uh, print guns, brass knuckles, bulletproof vests. So obviously extraordinarily dangerous stuff. But here's my question. Is there an exercise or an effort to trace exactly where these guns came from? Because while we talk about the federal government making a long list of weapons that are to be banned, and the chiefs of police across the country say, if we're worried about public safety and gun violence, then we have to understand where the guns come from, and by and large, they're coming from the United States. So, where did these guns come from? Or do we even take on that exercise of trying to figure that out? Because if we don't, then how do we further bolster that, I think, completely legitimate argument that if public safety is paramount, then let's start with the guns that are brought in that are largely responsible for the surge in gun violence in the country. So I uh, would be curious to know exactly where those guns came from or if they're even working on it. All right. Oh, just a very pleasant one before we go. For everyone, certainly around my age, and you're traveling across the province, across the island, you really would, you know, whine and beg for your parents to stop at Splash and Putt. The bumper cars in particular, right? 
So there's no more bumper cars or impact rides, as they call them anymore at Splash and Pot. They've got some virtual rides in place, but Splash and Pot is for sale. So it has been a key feature uh, in the province for a long, long time. The owners are retiring. They are anticipating an extremely busy season, and it was just last year that they added these virtual offerings, which are all the rage, and they're really quite cool. But Splash and Pot, let's hope someone wants to buy it to keep it there, not only for the tourists, but, of course, for everyone around here who enjoyed it. All right, quickly before we go to the break, happy birthday, Violet Sampson. She turns 80 today. She's out in Peterview. Apparently, they tune into the program on a regular basis. So, Violet, from your friends and your family and myself and Dave and everyone here at VOCM, we hope you have the happiest birthday. Thanks for tuning in. And if you have, you're so inclined, give us a call today on a topic of your choosing. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you have to call. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to one of the three candidates who would like to be the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Eugene Manning. Hi, Eugene. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks. How are you doing? Not too bad. Colin, this morning, Patty, there was a, a, a report by the Parliamentary Budget Office in Ottawa released a couple of days ago uh, pointing out that on the carbon tax <clears throat> and the so-called rebate and this climate incentive action, plan, action payment, um, over the coming years, that is still going to be a net cost to the taxpayer and the right pair Newfoundland and Labrador and across the country even. And I don't think it's getting the attention it deserves that we've just accepted the fact that this carbon tax is going to be imposed on us come July 1st. I really think there's more attention paid to it. Well, we can certainly do some of that right now. And the, the nitty-gritty from the PBO, and actually from Minister Stephen Gibo for the first time ever, because they used to stand quite firm on the fact that they use a lot of different numbers. 90% of Canadians will get back more than they pay on a carbon tax. Now we know that's not necessarily true. On the average, which is also hard to understand exactly what that number reflects, on the average, Canadian households will pay more than they get in the rebate. So, and of course, their defense is that wealthier Canadians will still pay pay more than the average Canadian, as they should. I mean, considering the fact that we have a progressive tax scale, that should always be the case. But what do we do with pricing on pollution? I think the government, this go-around of the federal budget, has tempered some of the sole reliance on carbon pricing or carbon tax to deal with emissions and for climate change matters. Now with tax credits for clean manufacturing and the whole critical mineral sector and what have you, I think they've tried to couch it to give it a bit more balance because as of prior to the federal budget, it was carbon tax and pretty much carbon tax alone. There was a couple of one-off programs out there. Well, they've done some work on it, but I think more interesting on that comes back to this continued discussion on cost of living in uh, across the country, and in particular how the carbon tax, at its root, it is supposed to be to dissuade um, uh, discretionary travel, meaning that, oh, you're not going to take your car that extra trip. But at its base, Patty, the carbon tax is a rural tax. Uh, look no further than Outport Newfoundland and come back to uh, cost of living and food security even. I don't know if you're familiar with the term of food desert, but in an urban environment like here in St. John's, if you're more than a kilometre from a grocery store, you're considered to be in a food desert. In a rural community, it's 10 kilometres. And we talk about people having uh, access to fresh fruits and vegetables and those things. If you're in Point Lance today, it's a 56-kilometre drive to get, a, to get a fresh banana. It's a 56-kilometre drive to see a doctor. What's discretionary about that travel? I mean, at, at its root, it is, it is, not, it is completely uh, imposed upon the people in rural communities, and in particular, Port Newfoundland, Labrador. Yeah, and of course that comes with the next steps in what policy should look like. Because even if you pull a carbon tax out of that, you still have to drive to get those goods. So, you know, that's where I think we 
don't do a very good job in trying to kill as many birds as we can with one stone. So if there's a carbon tax implication there, that to me screams not only concerns with carbon tax, but that's all about proximity to healthy foods and food options. So that's where I think when we focus in on one, the price point only, but proximity is a massive issue, as I think you rightfully point out. Maybe just maybe we can help temper the impact of a price on pollution with improving access. So, well, that, it, so oh, sorry. No, that, that's it. Go ahead. No, and, and, and that's my point is I, I, have a, I have an issue with this current government that we keep attacking these things in silos and as one item at a time, even come back to your preamble and treatment for our seniors and everything else. All of this has to be approached in tandem. It is not 14 independent government departments looking at problems. It is one government and it, it is the provincial government have to solve these across the board. Each one has an impact and I don't think that's being fully realized. Coming back to pricing pollution, uh, look no further. We're going to host here, the province here is going to host um, the Southeastern United States and Canadian Province Alliance later this year. And their big economic boon of late in the Southeastern United States has been LNG exports. We had the Chancellor of Germany show up here essentially looking to build us an LNG terminal, and we waved them off. I mean, who waved them off? Well, they, they approached here. We brought him to Stephenville, said we're going to, we're going to introduce wind power. There was no discussion. I think you'll have uh, – there was no discussion around allowing the proposed LNG terminal in Placentia Bay. Very little. They turned around and signed a 15-year agreement with Qatar. They're shipping LNG out of Texas. The challenge with the regulation around, the, uh, around climate change here is that those things benefit economies outside of Newfoundland and Labrador. It's a longer travel time on the ships and elsewhere. It does nothing to help the environment. We can have the strictest regulatory framework in the world – if no one's going to do work here. But if we can find a way to make it reasonable for industry to choose Newfoundland and Labrador and Canada over other jurisdictions, it is better for the environment, it is better for the economy, and it's better for the workers in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's, I, I get a bit confused on the gas issue. Look, if the world is thirsty for natural gas, liquefied or otherwise, we do indeed have plenty of it in this country. In the provincial budget, there was talk about assessing the stock of natural gas, which I, I suppose is an important, it's important to understand exactly what we're sitting on before we talk about plants to extract, produce, and to sell. But does, does that conversation start with industry or with government? Because unless there's a proposal brought forward, then the governments are just sitting there waiting. Governments don't uh, produce gas. Governments don't explore for gas or oil. So those conversations kind of belong at, certainly at their origin, with the industry, don't they? Uh, somewhat, Patty, but some of that work has been done. We have a proposal there for an LNG export terminal in, in Placentia Bay, also across Canada since 2008. There's been uh, 18 new export terminals have been proposed. There's only one in BC that's anywhere near completion. And I think when industry looks at these things, these are not small expenditures, as you know. There has to be a regulatory framework that they can be confident in instead of investing in something they don't know or they know for sure that it will never be approved. But this is coming back to things that how we can tackle the climate change issue independent of just an outright tax on on your home heating and getting yourself access to healthy food or anything else uh, in, in rural Newfoundland. It comes back to the cost of living and the basics. Uh, not everything has to be a tax patty. There's different approaches to all of these things that can be, that can be handled. Which, which is why I think it's probably very pragmatic to do what the feds did regarding tax credits and what have you, because then there's an opportunity to curb or control emissions all the while increasing economic activity. My, my point on the gas, and I don't dispute that, you know, we have to maximize opportunities while there's still any demand out there. I don't know when peak is going to be arrived at, whether it be for oil or gas, or I, I just don't know. I'm not sure anybody does. 
But for instance, you mentioned 18 proposals. Not all of them actually made it to the environmental assessment stage. They're the one that has been approved out in Kitimat, I'm not even sure there's any construction continuing on that particular project at this moment in time. There's zero applications in front of the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. The companies here, especially some of the smaller players, we'll say Husky before they became part of Synovus, they would have loved nothing more than to be able to choose options beyond flaring it or re-injecting gas, but there was never a business case that satisfied any potential profits. If I, if I remember correctly, it's somewhere in and around 5 bucks per MMBTU. Today, the market's opened at just about 2 and a quarter, or even possibly less than that. So until it works for them, governments can say whatever they like, because governments aren't, aren't in the business, unless we're going to subsidize it to the point where we extract it for the sake of, which is also an extremely poor play. So unless the companies think, well, I'm interested, I being Exxon, I being Synovus, or I being Suncor, then I think we're just going to have a bit of a standstill here, regardless of who wants the product, because if they can't make money, because that's their sole responsibility to their shareholders, make money. If they can't, they won't. Well, I, look, I think there's, I, I think it's a, a chicken and an egg thing. They have to know the regulatory framework and the support is there, not necessarily financial, but otherwise to make these things work. And there's opportunities coming back to the southeastern United States. Um, they just have, they just opened up a terminal down there where their off, offshore supply ships are now carbon neutral. Um, mostly by battery power and by LNG and otherwise. I think there's multiple opportunities on the technology front and come back to research and development and those things, and we can move forward. My, my point is the only solution to this is not a carbon tax. And I just feel, look, the House is supposed to be open until Thursday, and they just announced today they're going to shut it down a day early. Uh, there's plenty of things to be discussed in the House of Assembly and otherwise around here. And the fact that we've just put up our arms in, in, uh, in exasperation over the carbon tax, say, well, that's all we can do, Ottawa's imposing it, I, I think that's a lost opportunity here. I don't think that's all we can do is going to work uh, for the people who have to start paying more for their home heating or for the gas come July 1st. I think the home heating is the far bigger implication of the federal scheme or policy or whatever coming to this province on the 1st of July. But, Eugene, I do appreciate your time, uh, and thanks for this. I appreciate it, Patty. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye. I see Eugene Manning. He's one of three running for the PC leadership. That, of course, includes Lloyd Parrott and Tony Wakeham. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the chairman and interim CEO of Search Minerals. That's Leo Power. Good morning, Leo. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Before we get into reaction to the federal budget and opportunities in the future, I know that Search is sitting on at least two significant critical rare earth elements. Where are you? What are you doing? We're located in southeast Labrador um, in the communities of St. Louis and Port Hope Simpson and Mary's Harbor, and we're looking to advance a project to develop rare earth elements. So we have two flagship deposits called Deep Fox and Foxtrot, and a recent uh, preliminary economic assessment concluded that we could have 26 years of mining those two deposits, both open pit and underground, to produce magnet rare earths, which are required for permanent magnets and permanent magnets are what's required in electric vehicles and other green technologies and they help they are actually the most efficient and most powerful magnets in the world they uh, operate at very high temperatures and in addition to batteries required for electric vehicles separately we need these permanent magnets 
And, you know, for people who don't have any interest in electric vehicle, it's kind of neither here nor there because the world does. And whether it be an electric vehicle or laptop, a cell phone, whatever the case may be, we're sitting on huge opportunities. Before we get into what they may be, in the most recent federal budget, when talking about expanding opportunities and some of it in reaction to the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, what does your company, your industry look at inside that budget, which gives you encouragement that the government understands the path forward and understands industry needs? Well, I think about one of the great energy experts in the world who said, if we're going to decrease our use of fossil fuels, in particular oil and gas, then if people don't want big oil, they're going to have to deal with big shovels. And the reality is that we have to mine uh, considerable amounts of material to produce the um, the materials required for green technology. So I'm very happy, of course, to see the government of Canada encouraging um, the development worth elements in Canada and other, you know, critical elements that are required for batteries, permanent magnets, and green technologies. How, I mean, because there's nothing perfectly green in this world. Every industrial or commercial application has some sort of environmental impact. People arguing against the opportunities in critical minerals and or electric vehicles in particular say, you know, give us some understanding what emissions from a shovel in the ground to the final product, whether it be a laptop battery or battery electric vehicle, and whether or not we're actually making a cleaner step forward. Give us an understanding about how the environmental issues are considered by the industry and whether or not we're actually going down a greener path versus just the boogeyman that has become oil. Well, number one, Patty, it's going to take decades to transition to net zero sure. in this world. So I can see, you know, fossil fuels obviously being used uh, for decades to come, in particular natural gas. But, you know, if we're going to reduce carbon emissions and people-made carbon emissions, then clearly electric vehicles and wind turbines and uh, robots, etc., are the way to do it. And But to get there, we need to ensure we have the critical minerals to enable that. Fortunately, here in Newfoundland Labrador, we have both the materials required to produce the batteries for electric vehicles and other technologies, which of course includes nickel and copper and cobalt and lithium. But we're doubly blessed to also have the resources required to make the permanent magnets. And that's the rare earth elements which are in abundance and in economic concentrations in Labrador. And uh, so we can make a very positive contribution towards uh, reaching net zero within the next few decades. You know, they even talk about the electrification of the offshore. And even with Beta Nord, they've got an onboard uh, combined cycle electric generator. How do we electrify the mines with our renewables in Labrador in particular to further reduce emissions and to make it as green as possible? Well, obviously, the, the green technologies of wind power and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, just making technologies more efficient so that there's less, less emissions. Our mine in southeast Labrador will require minimal uh, uh, electrical power, maybe five megawatts, you know, so... Uh, you know, we don't foresee ourselves requiring a massive amount of, uh, of electricity to produce the products. Last one, and for me, I think this is big picture stuff because I think we're the only democratic country on the face of the earth with not only all the minerals required for these batteries, what have you, but we've been lacking and we've been feeling some infl inflation pressure because of global supply interruptions. I know for your company, which is in the business of extracting, 
How do you, your company, the industry talk about more of a role for a global supply chain control here? Because we've done a lot of this in this country. We extract it, we ship it, and then we buy it back. So how important and what steps are being taken to create a global supply for the critical and rare earth minerals? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, as we know, China today dominates the world of rare earth elements and the production of permanent magnets. In North America today, we have no permanent magnet plant. We have just one rare earth mine operating in California in the United States and a second rare earth mine just opened in the Northwest Territories in Canada, but that's it. So there's enormous opportunity to start a new industry here in Newfoundland, Labrador. And I'm talking about an industry that goes from mines potentially to permanent magnets. And we're collaborating with uh, the College of the North Atlantic and Memorial University to understand how we can maximize secondary processing here. So in Labrador, we'll make a concentrated 3.5% purity. Then we run that material through a hydromet plant to produce a 56% pure product. And then we intend to uh, um, build a separation plant to produce the individual earth oxides. And they're required to produce the permanent magnets. And so we should also investigate whether or not we can attract a business here to Newfoundland Labrador to build those permanent magnets that then go into the electric vehicles and other green technologies. Yeah, one of the companies that makes uh, electric vehicle batteries for Tesla has signed some form of agreement here. And you mentioned China and their dominance in this space. And correct me if I'm wrong, but they import somewhere in excess of 80% of those minerals to then ship it back to the rest of us. So that economy of scale is certainly way upside down if we're talking about lost opportunities here in the country. And let's hope we can seize them. Uh, final thoughts to you, Leo, before we say goodbye. Well, just like the Europeans and in particular the Germans learned a very painful lesson recently, do not overdepend on one country like Russia or you'll end up in deep trouble. And we have to quickly diversify from our dependence on China for rare earth elements um, and to build this new industry here in our province. Massive opportunities ahead of us. And, of course, some of the announcements have really just talked about northern Quebec. And as much as we just got left out of the Atlantic Loop conversation, we have to forcefully insert ourselves into the conversation regarding critical minerals. Good to have you on, Leo. Appreciate the time. Great. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's Leo Power. He's the chairman and interim CEO at Search Minerals. Let's go to line number five. Shane, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. How are you doing today? Excellent today. How about you? Not so bad. I'd uh, I'd be better if I had a vehicle on the road. Unfortunately, I hit what uh, what some people would describe as the crater that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs. The the town or the sorry the province calls it a pothole. Um, it's a provincial road, right? So it's uh, it's in the town of Bay Roberts, but it's the provincial highway. So it's the provincial responsibility. Uh, this particular pothole had had complaints for two weeks leading up to it. Uh, the staff of the Irving across the street from it had been some of the people who had complained as well as the customers. Anyways, absolutely nothing was done because it is, of course, the provincial government. So not even a sign was erected. They couldn't even send out their three-man crew so that one person could hold a shovel while the other two put a sign up saying, caution pothole ahead. Anyways, we're... Fast forward to, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I'm driving down the road, uh, 40, 45, maybe 50 kilometers an hour, maybe, would be the top. And uh, I couldn't swerve because it's a double lane with a big truck in the uh, other lane, so all I had to do was slow down. My rim is bent, Patty, to the point where it's almost unrecognizable. 
you wouldn't know that it was a rim that would go on a vehicle. That's how bad it is. It needs a new rim, a new tire. We need a wheel alignment. We need down the line sensors, the whole nine yards. So the reason I'm calling you is because I reached out to the province and they gave me a general insurance claim contact info. So I thought, okay, this is fantastic. I can submit my receipts and, and be reimbursed. It turns out it's the province's best practice to not reimburse people for their damages. So then I asked, well, what is the purpose of the general division claim here? It, they don't have an answer for me on that one. It's basically, there's a lady named Sonia Power who works there, and it's basically to keep her employed as far as I can tell. So I have a hypothetical for you, Patty. Okay. The, the province has no legal, li- legal liability to keep the road safe, and they have no legal liability to reimburse me when they don't keep it safe. But I do apparently have a legal liability to have my end safe, as in my vehicle, inspected, paid for, and all that. So can I start saying now, me and the rest of us, can we start saying, well, it's not in my best practice to reimburse you when my, when my car is dangerous. So if I get hauled over and I don't have my valid inspection and the officer wants to give me a ticket for it, can my response be, well, it's not my best practice to reimburse the province when, when my stuff isn't safe? I understand the hypothetical you're painting, and you and I both know the answer is no. And I totally get your point and the approach you're taking. You know, even when we talk about municipalities, their responsibility you know, they tell us in fairly vague terms, well, if they're given a required heads up a day or two or whatever, so they get a chance to respond, because the pothole can appear very quickly. We get it. But when's the last time the province or a municipality ever reimbursed anybody for whether it be the blew the suspension out of the vehicle, ruined a rim in a tire? I have never heard of one check being cut. So they do play very close to that loophole and dive in and out of it constantly. Well, I, there's one point I'll make on that. The city of St. John's has actually reimbursed me before. Oh, they have, this, eh? For, for this exact thing. Wow. Yes, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't major. I didn't damage a rim. It was a, a blown tire, and uh, a rim was kind of, like, dented, and the, the mechanic was able to kind of, you know, bang it back where it needs to be, and, and okay. we bought a new tire. The, the city of St. John's did, in fact, reimburse me for that. It was within the city limits, and I went through the proper channels, and, and they did reimburse me for it. With with minimal fight, we'll say. Oh, good. But 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 the province here is saying that they're like regardless of the situation, they don't reimburse at all. So I'm telling you that they had two full weeks of multiple people. Not just actually, I didn't even complain. I only complained once I hit it because that was the first time I noticed it. When I went to the gas station to to you know get some snacks for myself and and figure out how I'm going to get a tow truck and all this kind of stuff to fix my car. They're telling me, we've had customers the last two weeks coming in here. Guys have been damaging their rims, blowing their tires out, calling the province, telling them all about it. Now the province is saying, well, file an ATIP request to get that proof if you want that proof. You've filed an ATIP request before, so have I. How long do you have to wait for those things? Yeah, it's infuriating. And like I mentioned off the top of the program, if I wasn't paying attention, which I try to when I drive, I would have been into a massive pothole that is brand new because it wasn't there yesterday when I made my way to work on the exact same route. I heard also mention of a massive one coming off one of the CBS bypass roads that people might want to be aware of today. So uh, terrible stuff. And if the province is unwilling to... Uh, reimburse, you know, through careful examination. You don't want to be taken to the cleaners because someone is doing a poor job operating their vehicle, but if they never do it, then let's just do away with that fallacy and whoever we're paying to pretend they're doing it.
Yeah, I mean, that division doesn't need to be there if their initial best practice is we're not going to reimburse you, right? And, and I'm a reasonable person. You know, you, you mentioned it, potholes do appear uh, pretty quickly, right? So, like, I, I totally get that. There's, there's, there's ways where you'll have a clean road one day and then something happens, whether it's weather, whatever, and you get a disturbance in the road and now you've got a pothole that wasn't there yesterday. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody expects those depot people or the people uh, behind the, the desk, say, to, to know about that in a timely fashion and get out right away and do that. You've got multiple weeks and you've got people sitting around. You're, 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 the depot, the people sitting at the depot, I can drive by the depot. They're, they're sat there. They're not on site doing stuff. So they clearly have time to leave that depot and go deal with their job description, which is to keep that road safe. They've had multiple complaints aimed at that. In my mind now, this is, this is just neglect on their part. And, and I'm, I'm the victim of it. I've, I've had harm caused to me because of it. And now they're saying, well, we're the government, so we don't have any liability because we make the rules. Yeah, and I'm not pushing back against your point, but of course we're in that tricky season of how do you even adequately deal with the pothole? The asphalt plants aren't up and running as far as I understand. So we do some cold patch or we put an orange sandbag in or whatever, none of which uh, stands the test of time. And what I mean by stand the test of time, rush hour. So, it doesn't last. No, you're, you're absolutely right. If you had put a couple of signs on, on, on the east, hold on, let me get my direction, western facing road because it was the west lane westbound lane that got hit if you had put at that first intersection caution potholes ahead a big orange sign that would have avoided a lot of mess a lot of us would have been you know taken out of the inside lane we would have come into the inside lane and left that outside lane by the curb where the pothole was alone but again there was no sandbag put there there wasn't even as much as a sign erected for two weeks people were complaining about it Nobody even went up with that orange sign that said cash and potholes ahead. Appreciate the time and the point, Shane. Sorry it happened to you. Yeah, thank you very much, Patty. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go and take a break. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to this program. Let's go to line number two. Bill, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi, Bill. How are you today? Couldn't be better. How about you? Lovely grand, lovely grand. Uh, just uh, first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Carl, let's talk about that 1.6 bossing issue. Yep. So, like you were saying, I think it's a crack of bull. I got two youngsters, and I'm my house from my school to where the bus stops is 1.6. But when I uh, got the vice principal to come over and clock it off from my house to the school, to the school entrance is 1.5, so we were exempt. I had to drive my children to school. Is to the school entrance, even though I'm 1.6. So my issue is, how come the bosses don't stop at the school entrance? But they don't. They go in right around, straight to the door. But they expect my children, which is where I am 1.6, to go 1.5 to the school entrance. That's the, that's the rule. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm familiar with the rule, and some of it is really yeah. quite silly. So there was yeah. one example given by a caller, and this is a few years ago, if I remember correctly, is that they counted it off where they had one of those little wheels where people do these yeah. measures for uh, industrial applications or whatever. And so right from her door, 
Like she started at her door and went down the steps and down the path and down the sidewalk and all the way. And it was 1.65 kilometers to the front door where the students come out at the end of the day. The school district said, well, the school grounds start here. And that was about a half a kilometer uh, down the road because the school was way back in its own road. And so consequently, they used that arbitrary cutoff at the curb and used that to say that she's uh, got to find her own way to school. So it was just really yeah. remarkable how how diligent yeah. they are or how stick, stickly they yeah. are with it. Yeah. And then and then to add, add, add to it, they told me I could uh, apply for a courtesy seat. Okay, so I applied for the courtesy seat. And the courtesy stops are within the 1.6. You know, it don't make sense. So for me to go to get to these courtesy stops, I still got to get aboard my car or truck to go to these stops, even though the bus still passes my doorstep. Three locations. I still got to drive. So, you know, if I'm halfway there, I just want to keep going. Yeah, and the courtesy the courtesy seat for people who don't know, you can apply even if you're in the family responsibility zone for a pickup yep. if there's space available on the bus, and some of those uh, applications yep. do get approved. But for the life of me, you know, if we have runs where you've got buses that are absolutely at capacity, I can't remember what that number is. Is it 56 yep. on one of the regular school buses? So it's full. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, so you got a full bus. All right. If we talk about needing to add a smaller bus, what that price may be, but how many buses in this province are driving past school-aged children in the K-6 system who are inside 1.6, but the bus is half empty, and they're still driving past them? I mean, why? Exactly. Exactly. And that's the same situation I'm in. The bus drives past there every morning and every evening, but I still got to go to school to pick my children up. But the thing I'm looking at is, now next year, one is going to a junior high, and one is going still the elementary. So how do I jingle this? <laughs> yeah. I've got two different schools to go to. You know, that's the thing I'm looking at. And, uh, yeah. Is, uh, yeah, we've got to figure it I out. Think, it's yeah. just, it has I never made every, any sense. Every child this day and age should be able to get the bus. You know, they have money for everything else. But uh, a child safety, I think, is, is true out the window. Well, you know, in some spots, you may indeed have a fairly safe or relatively safe walk to school. You might be able to leave your house, have a crossing guard or a crosswalk well lit and make your way across and traverse down a sidewalk that is uh, the snow is removed and the salt is down and you're in a pretty safe area. But there's lots of parts of the province where the walk to school is on the shoulder of the highway. (laughs) Exactly. So, yes, I mean, we've got to figure this one out. They just are so staunch in their position on this. It's just absolute nonsense. And and I'm calling them Torbay, so I wouldn't let none of you go walk on Torbay Road. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate the call, Bill. Thank you, Patty. Have a good one. You too, man. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, there was a question I posed to Minister O'Regan, of course, the Minister of Labor in the country, about, you know, the numbers they throw around is that we've recovered 100.3% regarding the economic performance from pre-pandemic to today. 126% job recovery, which does not include people who have left the labor participation market, no longer looking for a job, also doesn't necessarily really break down that the the numbers of jobs that have been created in the public sector. Minister O'Regan did say that he would get back to me after having a look at the numbers, and he did. I've got some additional 
information in front of me, but Tom wants to talk about exactly that right after the break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I want to start by welcoming David back. It was nice to hear his voice this Absolutely. morning. Absolutely. On the phone. Yep. Uh, and I just quickly want to highlight just a couple of things. Um, I was talking to a homeowner who, over the last, starting last year, when the price of furnace oil went up a lot, uh, put in a mini split, and also uh, had had the benefit of some electric baseboard heaters in his home and uh, transitioned away from oil. And over the winter, instead of burning 5,000 liters of oil, he burned 200. And uh, and his net savings for the year for 12 month period was uh, around between 5,500 and 6,000 dollars on his. Uh, total energy cost. So, you know, that's that's a lot of money. But not only that, he also reduced the amount of greenhouse gases he produced from um, 15, sorry, 30,000 pounds, 15 tons, down to around um, 1,100, 1,200 pounds. So, so this is a, it's a massive difference. And, and it, you know, a lot of times when we're having all these very difficult conversations, everybody makes it black and white. And of course, none of this stuff is black and white. It's all very, very gray. And and talking about the exceptions, about how there are some homeowners and there are some people have to drive a lot. And and we need to try and, as a, as a community, come together and support those people who have no other choice. But at the same time, also recognize that because one individual or one group of people, it's kind of like the argument of, of we shouldn't have electric cars in Newfoundland because they have to build coal plants down in the United States. It's like a straw man argument. And we need to try and find a way to be more nuanced in our public discourse about these really important adaptations we need to make to, to have a, a sustainable path forward. It, well, everybody, politician or otherwise, that tries to offer oversimplified solutions to extraordinarily complex and uh, issues is really not very helpful, to be honest with you. And, you know, to talk about things in just broad strokes when every individual circumstance is different is also not very helpful. But anyway, Tom, point taken. Let's get into the public sector jobs. Right, and I know you mentioned Seamus, so I, I want to start there, and I'm really interested to hear what he got back to you with. Yep. But we do need to hold, I mean, I like Seamus, he's a good guy, he's done a lot of good work for Newfoundland and Labrador, so it's, so it's not personal. However, when we pay people a lot of money and their staff a lot of money to support them, and, and they're, they're the minister of a federal or provincial uh, department, and in this case, labor, um, when they make statements that are either crafted by um, public relations people or given to them by their people and if and if and if either they don't know the difference then we need to help them edu- help educate them so you know getting back to last week Seamus was on and you um, did a great job of doing what you do which is you know bring a very intelligent and nuanced conversation and you asked him the question about the 87 percent of of recovered jobs since covid has has been created by public sector hiring you know and and his response was oh you know that doesn't sound right i've mean, I never heard that before so so i want to rewind backwards to the um the last november when the liberal party had its uh, convention and and all the federal government uh, representatives were there well everybody except for uh, one but and they had a round table and and the talking points that we find our leaders say something that effect of you know you know that we've recovered all the jobs and all that stuff. So, so I put my hand up and I, I made the statement that, you know, Mr. Minister, do you are you aware that 87 percent of all the jobs recovered at that point? Because back then it wasn't 101 or two or whatever it was. We were like wherever we were. 
And he, he had the exact same reaction last November as he did on your show last week. Well, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't make any sense. So I then emailed his, you know, his assistant and, you know, the exact information that where that information had come from, which was Stats Canada. And so, you know, when I listen to that, I think, okay, so that's our Minister of Labor, and that's his reaction. Those, that's his talking points. And, and how do we navigate forward from that point? So, so let's start with what he came back to you with. Okay, let me pop it up here. So the numbers I was using were, of course, from the Financial Post, which is pretty reputable. You know, people talk about fake news all the time. But the Financial Post, and these number came, the numbers came directly from the government. And the story uh, was from September. I think I even said to the minister November, but I think I saw a repost of the same story that initially was posted in September. And here we go. This is from Minister O'Regan, StatsCan, and the Department of Finance. Since September, the trend is pretty much what he suspected. He says it tells quite a different story. Since that article, the minister says, there's been 311,800 private sector jobs added to the economy, 28,000 self-employed jobs, and been a drop in public sector jobs by 3,900. Goes on to point out, you know, that during the pandemic and additional programs and staff required to roll them out were part of the hiring, but it does not dispute the fact, and he doesn't argue the fact, that up to September, job recovery numbers included 86% of those jobs in the public sector, which is, doesn't mean you simply uh, live and work in Ottawa either, of course, because the federal government has uh, tentacles across the country. But he says it's a different picture since September. Your thoughts? Well, you know, again, for me, it's, it's you know, I just call on all our leaders to just be straight with all of us, because when they treat us like, I don't know, I don't know what they do. They, they have their man. I guess they have their what they're trying to communicate, trying their talking points, whether it's clean oil or whatever else, you know, just call on them to to. Just be straight with us. Just to be honest, you know, don't. I know. I know they're worried about public confidence, and that's really important. But you know, I just, you know, I don't really have a lot of thoughts on other than the fact that, you know, it is what it is, right? I just, it just don't, don't. My thoughts are what it seems to be happening. And I know I'm rambling a little bit now. As I reflected this morning before I made this call, I realized that within the province, we've got what seems to be a. We, say, we have a government who's saying they want to, with, with the PERT report, and else, they want to reduce, you know, the public sector spending. Somehow, try and find some balance so we can have a sustainable province. That's what they say out loud. But then, as I reflect upon it, right now we have GPs who are being absorbed into collaborative care clinics, so we're moving people who are self-employed onto the public purse, onto the benefits and the pensions. And then we also have early childhood educators who now the exact same thing is happening. So, so. There, that's a bunch of new government employees, directly or indirectly, who will be, on, seems like on track, just like now we have the ambulance attendants slash paramedics who, you know, you had a caller on yesterday who owns, I believe he said, six ambulance uh, bases across the province, right from amazing spread from St. Bride's all the way to Port of Basque and up to the Great Northern Peninsula. Incredible. I don't know how you would manage that, but... But yeah, let me ask you this very simple question based on what yeah. you just said there. So does that mean that even in the new pay model that the NLMA is bringing to their members, that that only worked for doctors working in their own, for all intents and purposes, private contractor clinics, or does that also uh, stand for the doctors uh, that are working in these collaborative care clinics or family care clinics, whatever people want to call them? So they come on to solely public purse as opposed to X percentage of fee for service and then the rest of it being this new blended capitation model? You know, I'll, I'll be fully transparent. I'm not sure how it works in a collaborative care clinic, but I know we have a lot of doctors who are just on the payroll. They just have a, they have a salary. I, I can't see how a collaborative care clinic works 
when you have different people covering for different people, unless I, I don't know how the doctor bills when when some days it's a nurse looking after you, some days it's you know it could be him or her. So, to my mind, I would I just assumed, and I may be wrong, and it'd be great to have that education. I just assumed that if they went to work at a collaborative care clinic, then they're on a set, they're getting a salary. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Do you know any different? Well, th- that's part of working in the so-called private offerings as well as a contractor, because you know when you talk about their billing numbers to MCP, that does not include the money that they're making otherwise. So. The MCP is a per-visit issue as opposed to, like, for instance, if you were only able to bill MCP and that was your entire salary for the year and there was nothing else on top of that, then 37 bucks does not pay a doctor's salary. So that's how I understand it to work. And we've actually invited Dr. Luscombe on from the NLMA to help us understand this new model and why it's better for doctors, what his membership thinks of it. And I will absolutely put to them, to put to him, is there a different pay structure in my own private clinic, uh, clinic on Topsail Road versus working in the collaborative care clinic on Monday Pond Road. I'll figure that out. Yeah, well, that'd be helpful because the other challenge is, so, so the, the, the feds introduced this new uh, dental thing, which is great because actually dental hygiene is way more important than most people even realize. It affects your cognitive abilities and, and how long you live and a whole bunch of things, how, how, how good your, your teeth are because obviously it's so close to your brain and bad things happen. However, we can't make any more dentists um, and they're very difficult to make, just like doctors, probably even more difficult than doctors, just probably less dental schools. So, you know, have they thought that through, just like with the ECE model? Well, you can create ECEs pretty easy, but you can't dentists. So, so you know, and, and this is the other thing is as you, as you allow, as you increase access, and, you know, now you have nurses being able to prescribe, which I think is very, like, almost revolutionary. I think that's an incredible thing. And, and the nurses union are now saying that's going to make nurses' jobs easier because they don't have to jump through all the hoops they had to jump through to get through, get to a doctor and requisition and get prescriptions, which ultimately a lot of times the nurses, especially when they're specialized, know what medis, medi, medication is required. The, you know, they can also order tests. But, again, now we have a challenge that the more gatekeepers you have, the more you need downstream. So you need more testing ability. You need you need more, in theory, specialists because now you have more gatekeepers allowed that can that can order. So, so all these things are connected, and I know it's just kind of like whack-a-mole. You know, you, you you try and solve one problem, and and then you create maybe a larger challenge. But we're all. I mean, I I think you've got to. I think in the case of the province, you have got to give credit. And I I hope the opposition have it in their quiet hearts or whatever that, you know, what the what we're doing is pretty revolutionary in this province. But I do. I am really concerned about the long-term cost and the fact that potentially we're creating a situation, which I know you allude to and say directly, that people are going to work less because they can as they make more money. And then we have less people working less time with a sicker population. That's why, again, I keep coming back. I want to keep driving home that we all need to try and be healthier in every way, shape, or form. I appreciate the time this morning, Tom. Take care, everyone. You too. Bye-bye. All right. We'll see what the registered nurses think about this new uh, amendment to the act, allowing them to perform more and more duties here, prescribing drugs and diagnostic imaging, referrals to specialists. What that's going to mean, not only for nurses, but us as patients. Yvette Coffey is the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. She's next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As advertised, join us on line number two is the president of the RNUNL. That's the Registered Nurses Union. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, welcome back to the program. I'm really quite interested in a registered nurse's take on this because we've been talking about maximizing scope of practice for healthcare workers throughout the entirety of healthcare. I would have thought this is an addition to workload. Your initial reaction is that it will not be an additional workload responsibility. Help us understand. Uh, 
well, I'll have to correct you. I don't think I said it wouldn't be an additional workload because we really don't have the details. Um, so when you increase scope of practice, and as you said, we've been talking about this for a while. It's one of the recommendations of Health Court NL that everybody be working to their full scope of practice. The concern that we have about this is the increased workload. We had a nursing shortage of 752 RNs and a shortage of nurse practitioners. Um, and my understanding is that there were there have been talks ongoing about RNs prescribing since 2020. And it's just now that the legislation got signed because this is under the ARN Act, which is not something ARNU is involved in. It is our college, our regulatory body. Yes, and that's where, of course, I conflated two different people with the one comment. Lynn Power says that it's going to help lighten the workload, not you. Pardon me. Right. So, and it may lighten the workload because I remember, you know, I've worked in critical care for most of my 33 years and we had protocols in place. So if a patient had chest pain when I worked in coronary care, we had a protocol that I could go ahead and give medications um, in that protocol. And then if that didn't work, then I called the physician, right, to come and assist the patient. But thinking back to when I worked in critical care or in any area, if I recognize the signs and symptoms of someone having an infection that's gone through their body, which we call sepsis, right now I would have to call a physician to order a septic workup, which means um, you get a sample of their spit, you get a sample of their blood, right? Um, as a registered nurse, I have the education and wherewithal and knowledge to know that that patient needs a septic workup. So it will make that easier in that I don't have to go that extra step and wait for a physician to come and that, I can go ahead and order that. The problem here is we don't have the information. I'm getting information just like the public is with the announcement that came out yesterday. And um, the worry is that if nurse practitioners are expected to supervise or collaborate with RNs doing this the three training models and needing to be supervised for when they're prescribing. Uh, it's going to take up to a year from what I understand in the news releases. That that will then increase the workload of the nurse practitioner. It also increases workload and scope of practice for registered nurses. Would I ever say no, we shouldn't increase scope? Never, because I believe that we are very educated and knowledgeable um, healthcare providers. And it is definitely something that we should be looking at. And I know that our regional nurses, like on the coast of Labrador, they're already doing this. So if we're going to look at rural and remote, where we don't have physicians and we don't have nurse practitioners, and registered nurses are going to be assessing the patients and then prescribing, I think that's a great thing for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador because they will have care in their community. And I do believe that it gives the registered nurse more autonomy. The questions we have is, how is this going to be implemented? What will it look like? Will it impact workload, uh, et cetera? That's why I wonder how many registered nurses will actually uh, go ahead and take on these three additional training modules and about a year to complete. It's perfectly sensible to uh, adjust the curriculum at the Center for Nursing Studies, but how would it work for an already working registered nurse? Is it something that is just on-the-job training and just has uh, some time in their off time to absorb the three training modules? Or because we can't pull nurses out of the system to take on this additional training to be able to prescribe. So how does that work in real terms for, say, for instance, a permanent full-time nurse? 
So right now they would have to get either the time off uh, to support them having education leave to do these modules and, of course, Ooh. to uh, do the practicum clinical, or they will be doing it in their off hours because if it's uh, training modules, it may be e-learning, right? It might be virtual mm-hmm. learning that they can do on their day off. But then I wouldn't expect a registered nurse on their day off, <laughs> if they get a day off, uh, to do this for free. Right? It's education that will be required. And like I said, it's rural, remote, and specialty areas uh, from what I heard from the college when they spoke about this yesterday. So just recognizing where that is or how many uh, registered nurses would actually be involved is something we're looking to get more information on. And I've actually already put out a request this morning to get uh, information on um all of this in the announcements because there was another announcement with that too right with the regulatory change uh was the supervised practice experience partnership program and that's a good news story because right now during covid we had registered nurses who were retired greater than five years and once you're retired and don't have clinical hours you need to have so many clinical hours in order to get back into practice that would have cost ten thousand dollars and up to 18 months for a registered nurse who had retired to come back and help do swabbing or immunizations they've now changed that to clinical hours practicum and it'll be a shorter interval so i'd like to get more information on that as well but if we can get retired nurses back, if we can get internationally educated registered nurses who are currently here in the province working as personal care attendants because they haven't met the regulatory body requirements, that will be great for the shortage that we're now experiencing. One of the other amendments made is the ability to refer patients to specialists. So. You go ahead and make the referral to whatever specialist. And at some point, you would have follow-ups with your family doctor, for instance, as opposed to every single time for follow-up and further understanding with the specialist, you know, especially once treatments have come and gone or what have you. So does that mean that the registered nurse now is in that flow chart as the follow-up go-to healthcare professional? Because if you don't have a family doctor, but the RN gave you the referral, you can't always get follow-up appointments with your specialist unless there's ongoing treatment concerns or the symptoms haven't waned or the issue hasn't been resolved. So does that put the registered nurse in, on that flowchart? I can't answer that at this point in time. That's uh, more information that we would have to get from the college. Like right now, a nurse practitioner, they're autonomous, and actually they make referral to specialists, they order diagnostics, and they are the primary healthcare provider that the results would then go back to, yeah. right? And they would be the follow-up person. How would it work for the registered nurse? At this point in time, I don't have that information. When we talk about nursing vacancies, is that, is that a, a position that nobody is working in? Like, for instance, are the casuals part of the vacancy or they're counted in the, the employed working nurses? It's actually permanent and temporary vacancies. Um, I think actually it might just permanent vacancies. So you're talking uh, 752 permanent vacancies. So that does not include uh, temporary vacancies. So say a registered nurse has gone off on maternity leave and they have a hard job trying to replace that person, which is the norm these days. That's not counted in the permanent staffing vacancies. So there's actually more vacancies within the system because of movement when people accept a new position and move. Okay. Uh, For me, and of course you know much more about it than I do, when we're trying to deal with these issues of staffing shortages or patient ratio to staffing, whether it be personal care attendants or nurse practitioners, RNs in long-term care, if we get that right, 
we can have that ripple effect, a positive ripple effect with, you know, dealing with emergency room congestion and surgical backlogs and postponements. And you say that the bonuses being offered are not going to be enough. You and I have broached the issue of working alongside a private traveling nurse who's doing the same job, making more. If we're looking for the next wave of solutions here, what are they? Well, I've already, uh, you know, said publicly and I've said to the minister and the premier and uh, the department and the RHAs, uh, we are now the lowest paid uh, registered nurses and nurse practitioners in this country. We have um, outside provinces and agencies who are actually actively recruiting our nurse practitioners right now at this very moment. They're actually like contacting them on LinkedIn or their Facebook profiles or whatever and trying to get them at the province. And the same thing with registered nurses. If we're going to keep registered nurses and nurse practitioners, their compensation has to be in line. Uh, with the rest of the country. Uh, We can't be the lowest paid. And we also have to um, give initiatives to retain them. And I know people say, oh, incentive bonuses and retention bonuses don't work. Well, yeah, if I'm working in misery, which our registered nurses are at the present moment, uh, with the inability to get time off and uh, that, if you want to keep me, you're going to have to pay me. It's the law of supply and demand at this point in time with registered nurses, not only in Newfoundland and Labrador, but in this country and globally. Uh, anything else you'd like to add this morning, Yvette, before we say goodbye? Um, no, I don't think so. I do. Uh, I'll update you next week, I guess. Uh, we're having a meeting about the amalgamation of the health authorities. So that's something else that's on our radar. And, um, you know, that's going to be uh, busy times. Uh, and it's very, um, you know, any change is worrisome for our members in that. And uh, finding out what's going to happen, you know, with seniority, even within the four RHAs. One of the biggest issues I do have, and I have brought it up with the new CEO, Dave Diamond, and I've brought it up with the department and RHAs. Right now, we have four RHAs, and we have a chief nurse in each of those RHAs. With the new health authority, um, we actually only have one chief nurse. And I do have concerns about that because we're going to have five regional councils. We have a shortage of registered nurses. We are the largest group of healthcare providers. And I think there needs to be a nursing lens. And I will keep pushing for that nursing lens uh, as we get in discussions about the amalgamation of the health authorities. I appreciate the update when you have one. Thanks for this this morning, Yvette. Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. This is Yvette Coffey. She's the president of the Registered Nurses Union. Let's go and take a break. Uh, Sean wants to talk about nurses after this. And then we're going to talk about municipal politics and the role women should and could play inside municipal politics. And then Canadian Blood Services. And then you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I've got to say, another top-notch show again this morning, and enlightening. I, you know, your knowledge, uh, I'm really impressed. I appreciate that, and I appreciate your time. What's on your mind? Well, uh, you know, you were talking about the uh, new uh, seniors complex down in Pleasantville, yep. and that's the fact that there are 70 or 80 beds that are empty out there. And it's not quite that many. The bed number that I had this morning was uh, there's 464, 404 occupied, 60 that are not. Okay, so 60. Okay, well, yep. still, 60 is 60. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, well, it is because, you know, like, for example, my father needs a 
he needs to be put into a home. He has dementia and he's feeble and he's combative at times. And my mother is 75. She just cannot handle it anymore. So, but there's no nurses to take care of him. So he's not being admitted. And that's the trick. So, again, we'll say it out loud. How many people are in an emergency room because they can't get a family doctor? How many surgeries have been postponed and part of the backlog because there isn't a bed for people to recover in? Because those beds have been occupied by people who should be and have been accepted into a long-term care facility, but there's not enough staff to take them in. So it has a really widespread impact when we talk about getting long-term care right. And at this moment, obviously, there's some pretty systemic structural issues. And we have a great nursing school here, and we're training top-notch nurses. They're going stateside, they're going to the mainland, they're going overseas, uh, Saudi Arabia and whatever, and they're making great salaries. And our nurses are currently with, I would say, two or three years now without a contract. So all these other uh, faculties of the unions have been getting their contracts and the raises and everything else. And you're talking about nurses leaving and maybe having to sit on the bench for 12 months. It was your comment yesterday, you know, but that can never work. I mean, you know, it's not like you're getting uh, a, a salary that you get a severance package of whatever because you, you left a job in nursing. I mean, they're valued and needed elsewhere. So, um, you know, I know nurses here locally who are residing in the province and are leaving for other parts of Canada on a six-week or a four-week or a three-week turnaround, they're like they are in the oil field. And they're getting $35,000, $25,000 a year signing bonus every time you renew your contract. And they're getting, you know, they still get the same amount of time off. Now, you do have a travel day that's involved in it, but still, you're getting, you know, 35000 at the end of the year or beginning of the year or whatever the case is, it's something that will be looked at. I mean, Nova Scotia just gives ten thousand dollars per year for the nurses that they agree to stay for the next two years is twenty grand. We got you know, the nurses here were given uh, I think it was three thousand dollars after tax, you look at like fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, now you're always going to have some private sector entities wooing healthcare professionals away to work in their safety department or on-site as a healthcare professional, and that will have, I don't know how many numbers that would reflect, but we, you know, we have talked this issue, I was going to say to death, that's not really fair or accurate or appropriate, but we've talked about this at length. Where the solutions lie, I don't think anyone has a real defined answer to that question because what works for nurse A might not work for nurse B and consequently all the way down through the alphabet about different life experiences, different life circumstances, what they need and want, how old they are, how close to retirement they are, how much money they need. So that's where we're running into a bunch of hurdles here that have been proven to become very difficult to clear. And that was another issue, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, okay, so a nurse who graduated in 1995 mm-hmm. will have X amount of benefits available compared to the nurse who's graduating in 2020. They're not the same benefits because uh, when they put on the three years, they lost a bunch of benefits. But, I mean, here you are, instead of retiring at 55, now you have, all of a sudden you got to work till 58. But these are the women who have been, or mostly women, but we'll, you know, keep it neutral, gender neutral, and say women and men who have been on their feet now for the last 30 years. And you know yourself, standing on a concrete floor for two to three hours a day is brutal on your back. Well, imagine doing that now for 12 hours a day. You know? Yeah. You've got more sure. sick time, more benefits being paid out. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense of what the government has done in the past decade. And to continue and 
ignore the nursing industry. I mean, I'm not saying give them all 50 grand a year or anything like that. I mean, you know, uh, a bonus or even a contract. They don't have a contract. Yeah, I understand. And, you know, you mentioned men and women here. Just like there was formalized campaigns to attract women to work in the trades, I think it's time we have a formalized campaign to attract men to work in nursing. You know, there's yeah. real increase in nursing schools right around the country. There was a story not so long ago that there was a complete, uh, a full male staff on 4 North B, registered nursing staff on 4 North B, one time there, whatever it was, a, a month or two ago. So, you know, sometimes we have focus on, and people still do think that nursing is a woman's job. No, nursing Nursing is a healthcare professional job, and more and more men are taking it on. But I think if you formalize that campaign, we had great success when we were trying to bring women into the trades. Maybe, just maybe, there's an opportunity to bring more men into being a registered nurse, consequently easing the whole issue regarding what is the linchpin, apologies to all other healthcare professionals, in the healthcare delivery system. Uh, final thoughts to you, Sean. Go ahead. Hello. I agree 100%. Uh, you know, whether it's men being brought into nursing or you look at that company with uh, that did the interview with Eddie uh, on the news there a little while ago with the all-female uh, pilot team. They had eight female pilots. Again, it was a male-dominated uh, uh, industry, and now you got women that are filling the void. Good on you. I don't, you know, but it's time for a government to actually do something and negotiate with the nurses and to take them, you know, seriously. Like, I really, I really disagree with what Dwight and Debbie did back in the years, and adding that three years, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Here you are, you know, you get the oldest of the nurses who have done the, you know, 30, 35 years of being on their feet on the concrete floor, and then you're going to add three years to them. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me either. Sure. So He's- for these people being, you know, being swooned and and swooned by mainland, northern, southern, whatever the case is, these people, you know, these entities that are looking for these people uh you know they've got all these attractive bonuses and uh, benefits and everything else and they got contracts in place yeah uh, i think the pilot and the nurses issue are you know maybe this is split in hair but in the airline industry it was the lack of willingness for the industry to hire females versus nursing words men who don't see themselves as a registered nurse but the industry would hire them no matter what because we just need nurses i appreciate the time this morning sean thank you Thank you, Fatty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. And here we go along a similar vein to talk about women's participation in municipal politics. Trina Appleby joins us on line number four. She's the chair of the standing committee looking at that particular issue. Trina, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, is it, um, no, is it Trina or Trini? No, Trina. I thought so. I'm not sure I get it right. Thank you. Uh, th- yeah, no, thanks. I was listening to the uh, conversation just now, you know, about gender roles and participating in, uh, in, in in different professions. And, you know, uh, as I was listening, I was thinking it's not unlike, you know, the experience of working in the municipal sector. Uh, there's many times that you go in a room and, you know, there's more men and women. And I've had the great opportunity to uh, to sit at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Board because I'm elected member of the Torbay Town Council and my council supports more participation there. And, Patty, in the last three years uh, of serving on that uh, national board, uh, two of those three years, I've chaired the standing committee to increase women's participation in this sector across the country. And the other year, I was the vice chair of that committee. And, you know, one of the things that we do that's very cool, and the reason I wanted to call this morning, was to chat with you about some of the scholarships that we have available to uh, Canadians. And, you know, people in Newfoundland and Labrador have the same opportunities as anywhere else on um, 
these scholarships. So if I could just share those. Uh, the first one under the, um, the CAMLA program that's available, it's the Canadian Women in Municipal Government Scholarship. And this one's available for secondary school students. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that people know there's a $1,000 scholarship that's available. It's open to anyone who's a young woman, girl, or non, a non-binary individual who's enrolled in a secondary school and they're contributing to their school's leadership uh, team or their student council. It's meant to reward and inspire students who take on challenges and try to bring about changes that benefit their peers and their community. And I've actually shared the tweet um, this morning and I've tagged you guys in it. So if anyone's interested, they can certainly follow your Twitter and, and, and find that. Uh, there's also another scholarship that's available, and the deadline for both of these scholarships uh, are April the 11th, and it's for the Mayor Andre P. Boucher Memorial Scholarship, and she was a uh, mayor in uh, Quebec City, and these are two scholarships. They're $4,500. One is for a student who's at the college university undergrad level. The other one is at a graduate level, and uh, it's... Um, Again, another amazing opportunity that may help somebody who's young, either, you know, studying uh, women's issues or, uh, you know, interested in engaging in their community in a meaningful way. And, you know, just uh, if I could, just for a minute, uh, I participated in our Federation of Canadian Municipality board meeting in Ajax a couple of weeks ago with my good friend and colleague, President Amy Cody, who I'm her vice president at municipalities in my Labrador as well. And, you know, we sat, we sat there at a national uh, uh, event recognizing International Women's Day, speaking to, you know, our national colleagues about uh, what it's been like to serve in this, in this sector. And, you know, it, it's really important that people see themselves in this space and they understand this is a reality and an opportunity that's there for them. You know, because if we don't have this conversation, if young people don't see that, uh, you know, we can't recognize these opportunities for youth and share them, and we can't let them see themselves in the space. So I just think it's really important to talk about this. I wanted to reach out, make sure people knew about these scholarships, $1,000, $4,500. They can both go to helping some students, you know, with furthering their education and, and opportunities. So it's one thing for the scholarship to give them a leg up to get involved in one program or another, but how does that influence the end hope or goal of having more than one to participate in municipal politics? Well, you know, Patty, the question was asked of me uh, when I was on that panel with um, with Amy. What are you doing in your municipality to help make sure that people uh, know that this is an opportunity for them? You know, women, young girls, anybody who identifies anyway. And, you know, at the M&L level, I could say we're working on that. We're, we've got a women's caucus. We, we have our own events. We're, we're working in that space. At the FCM table, I'm, I'm sharing this. But I came back to Newfoundland, and I called Courtney Clark, who is the, uh, you know, the lady that I normally contact with, the uh, um, Equal Voice ML. And, and I said, Courtney, can you help me? Like, let's come up with some ideas for Torbay specifically. But when I think about my municipality and having that conversation, Courtney and I have already reached out to our local high school here for the region, you know, Holy Trinity High. And we're interested to go in and have a conversation about these youth and talk about what their opportunities are and how we can do that. One of the things that Mayor talked about last night in the council meeting, actually, was he had participated in the uh, UMC meetings for MNL this past week. And they went in and they, they went and they toured Marine Institute and they talked about, you know, how opportunities there and understanding what that is. And we chatted last night in the public council meeting about how do we engage youth 
and get them to see this. And how do we, you know, show the town in a leadership way in this way? But Patty, it really comes back to making sure they can see one, it's something they can do. Two, you know, thousand dollars would have caught my attention pretty quick, or forty five hundred dollars when I was at university to help to go towards that. And once you're thinking about these issues and what your opportunities are, are and might be, it becomes more realistic for you. And, you know, when I was young, I never dreamt that I was going to be the vice president of municipalities in Newfoundland Labrador. I never dreamt that I would be a part of the first all-women executive to run that organization with, you know, Mayor Dale Colburn of St. Louis Cricket and Amy, you know, Cody, who is a counselor of Grand Falls Winds, and I know you speak with Amy a fair bit. And, and you know, I, I never dreamt in a million years that I would have been part of the first all-female FCM delegation to represent Newfoundland Labrador at that national table, but it happened. And, and it's possible. And I grew up in a small town. I grew up in the town of Bjorn, you know. I didn't grow up in Torbay. But I'm very proud to represent Torbay. I'm very proud to represent all the municipalities here at that table and make sure that everybody else knows I'm just like anyone else who had an interest in my community, wanted to find a way to lead and have a meaningful part of leaving a better future for everybody else. And I think it's important that people see themselves in the space. They understand that it's open, it's available, it's positive. There's so many great things about leading as an elected official at whatever level you're leading in, I think it's just really important to share that message with people, make sure they know that, you know, that opportunity is open to them. The last thing, if I really could, Patty, is just, just to talk about, I know when we talk about participating in in um, in politics, there's always that concern about the negative lens. But one of the other things that we're doing at the FCM table is talking about the issue of harassment and bullying. And I've called you in the past. We've had this conversation. There's work happening in this space. There's ways that we can work together to create opportunities for everyone to see themselves in this sector, in the political environment. And again, I just want to make sure that people know there's a lot of positives. There's great things here and that we really want to engage our youth, engage members of the community and have them sitting around this table. Absolutely. You can find information about these scholarships at the Federation of Canadian Municipalities website. Pretty simple one, fcm.ca. And in addition to people seeing themselves on elected councils, it's also good for uh, effective, responsible governance to have the body of government, whether it be at the municipal table or the provincial legislature or the House of Commons, to reflect the population. Because, you know, lived experience goes a long way to making realistic and pragmatic decisions. Uh, Good to have you on, Trina. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Patty. Appreciate the time. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, there you go. Gord Skifferton, welcome back here in the queue. We're going to talk about Canadian blood services. And Tammy Elliott is a fish harvester. So we'll hear from Tammy as well after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number 10. Thank you more to the Community Development Manager at Canadian Blood Services. That's Gord Skiffington. Hi, Gord. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I just uh, wanted to uh, call in today to uh, remind the uh, the public um, that the need for blood never stops, especially uh, during a long weekend. And with the upcoming Easter public holiday weekend just around the corner, we want people to uh, book appointments and keep appointments to uh, donate blood. Just one quick question on that, because we hear the plea uh fairly frequently here about the need for more and more donors to come forward, or even if you are a current and active donor, to check in to see if you're eligible to go again. But there's such limited opportunity. I know the population base is the largest in this region, but is there conversations about expanding the footprint for Canadian Blood Services to draw donors in, whether it be with a mobile truck or the like? Because it seems to me there's probably donors out there, but they're not going to drive into the city to make that donation possibly. So 
um, with Canadian Blood Services, uh, we are uh, funded by the uh, provincial governments, and our goal in Newfoundland is to uh, collect the number of units. We need over 13,000 units of blood um, this year alone in Newfoundland, and our goal is to collect those um, 13,000 units here in the province as cost-effective as possible in saying that um, we do have a permanent donor centre in St. John's and we're open Tuesday to Saturday. We also do uh, have mobile uh, collection events um, throughout the uh, the province. Not every nook and cranny do we hold mobile events, um, but we uh, do... Um, set up mobile uh, donor events and uh, next week alone we're uh, in Gander for two days and we're in Lewisport as well. So you just set up a clinic like for instance in a town hall or a gymnasium or something is that how that works? Uh, yeah, exactly. So we're uh, next week, uh, when we're in Gander, we're actually going to be set up at the uh, Evangel Pentecostal uh, Church Auditorium. And uh, in Lewisport, it's the same thing. Um, so Gander next week, we're going to be there Tuesday and Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we're going to be set up in Lewisport at the Philadelphia Pentecostal Church uh, Gymnasium. Uh, just very quickly, and this is maybe a very medical question, but... What's the difference between the days between donations for males and females? I think it's almost 30 days uh, between the two. Why is that? So um, males can donate once every 56 days and females every 84 days. And a few years ago, through some studies, we were finding that females that were coming in every 56 days were uh, being deferred because of uh, issues uh, with their hemoglobin, low iron, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, through, uh, so through studies, um, you know, we determined that it was better um, that we asked females to come in every 84 days instead of every 56 days. Uh, and this is another question based on some recent news from Canadian Blood Services. There was a blood ban, blood ban in place for quite a long time, uh, specifically for gay men. Now it's not questions about your sexual orientation, but it's questions about your sexual behavior. What has that meant for the numbers of people willing to donate? How many new donors do you think have come as a result of that? So we're not quite sure. Um, you know, we did change our screening uh, criteria back in September, and everybody that walks through our door, they're asked the, uh, the same series of uh, questions, um, and it's basically behavior-based screening. And if anybody is looking for more information, they can actually go to blood.ca. Uh, it, it was an interesting ruling. I think followed suit with many other jurisdictions that were making that accommodation for a variety of reasons. Uh, anything else you'd like to add this morning before we say goodbye? Uh, nope. I just, uh, again, just want to remind everybody um, that we are open this weekend with the, uh, the long weekend. We are open in St. John's. Um, on Friday and Saturday. So if you have an appointment, you know, please honor your appointment. If you can't make it for whatever reason, please cancel so that we can find somebody else to take your place. And you can visit blood.ca or you can download the Give Blood app or you can even call our toll-free number 1-888-2-DONATE. That's 1-888-236-6283. Uh, to find a donor center near you or book an appointment. I hate to pepper you with questions, but how many active donors uh, does Canadian Blood Services have in the province? So here in Newfoundland, we have about 5,000 active uh, blood donors, and, um, you know, we certainly need more people to, um, you know, go online, 
check out and see if they are eligible to give and if they are to book their life-saving appointment. Do we know how many of those would be O negative, generally referred to as the universal blood type? I don't have that uh, statistic uh, with me, but I can certainly, uh, you know, pull some of the numbers and um, send it to you. It was I was just more curious than anything else, but really appreciate your time. Good luck, Gord. Stay in touch whenever you can use our services. We're happy to be there. Perfect. Thanks, Patty. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Gord Skippington is the Community Development Manager with Canadian Blood Services. Tammy Elliott, you stay right there. She's a fish harvester. And then Christine Ennis wants to tell us about an upcoming provincial championships and what discipline. Stay tuned. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Tammy. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. How about you? Uh, I'm I'm okay, but I'm frustrated. Um, we're fish harvesters, and we've had we face this turmoil each and every year. We're represented by the FFAW. Not too happy with them. They could be doing more. Uh, they're in negotiating prices now, which happens every year. You can mark it down. We never have a smooth opening. We always face roadblocks. We're faced with this year, as you know, the prices. We've only heard rumors. No one, none of our people that represent us has actually come out and told us that ASP has gone in with 220 a pound, and now here is uh, FSAW gone in with 310 a pound, which is down like 43 cents from the last offer that they went in with. Uh, everything is being done behind closed doors. We're told that they don't have the release what price we're going to get until April 10th, which is actually due to be our crab opening date which, you know, it, it should never be allowed. Like, they're representing us. We're paying them to represent us. Right, but what it's do we do with the numbers? Say, for instance, Tammy, that there was a press release or an interview on this show with both sides where they tell us what their price submission is. What do we do with those numbers? Because until they decide, and that's the price-setting panel, which is basically a body of three, but only one person really counts because there's someone generally representing the union, someone generally representing the ASP, and someone picks one price or the other. So what do we do with the info if we had it beforehand? Like, if you had the info beforehand, I'm sure there could be some more negotiations. You always hear about plants and processors talking about their margins. So what about some of the plants on the island here that truck in the crab from outside the province, yet we're not allowed to uh, send crab outside to be processed? We're stuck in a roadblock. I'm very frustrated with our government officials. We have not heard one word from any of them. So is this billion-dollar industry not very important to them? Do they realize the chain effect, the chain reaction that this will have if this industry goes down? Stop with the Band-Aid solutions. We don't need Band-Aid solutions. I love fish harvesting. I joined it nine years ago. My husband, it's in his blood. Love it out on the water. That's where your freedom is to. But when you get into the wharf, that's where you face the roadblocks. So it shouldn't have to be like that. What does a permanent solution look like? Because you're absolutely right in one of your opening comments that every year, same arguments on every species, price and tack and everything else. So what does a permanent solution look like, even if we just start the conversation? These negotiations have to be done much prior to the opening date. DFO has failed us with science. Look at the macro, for instance. They've failed us. They don't do the science. They're not up on the science. The science for the crab is done by fish harvesters. We do that ourselves. So macro showing up around the coastline. No, we must be seeing things. So they just take, take, take. 
they're not investing, they're not keeping their promise to do the fishery, you know, what they should be doing. This is people's livelihoods. We've got a lot invested in it. We're only small inshore fisher people. So by getting this low marginal price this year, yeah, I know we got a big price last year. It was kind of scary for me. I'll admit that because I was afraid of the following years. But everybody wants their fair share. We're hearing about crab in storage. Nobody knows the actual amount. Why is, like, things are being hidden. It's not adding up. So the price-setting panel is in behind closed doors deciding on our livelihoods. Just, okay, ASP price to the union price for us fish harvesters alone means a $25,000 loss. Crew members are hard to get. We have good crew members that we appreciate and we treat them well. We don't lowball them, but we want to treat them right. We, and I know, like, there's a big chain reaction, but something has to be done. These negotiations, these layouts, like in, uh, increases in crab, you know, this stuff has to be talked about prior to March, not a couple of weeks before opening date. Yeah, I mean, no one's going to argue that, you know, getting a bit of a lead time between knowing what the price is and gearing up and crewing up, that just makes sense to me. Here's something else yeah. I'm curious about, Tammy, is, you know, the price will be set on what they believe the market can bear. Okay. But you did mention that the amount of crab that's left in cold storage, and we don't know if exactly why that is or what the exact percentage would be, you know, whether it be because of the white tablecloth market in the United States or Russian crab in Japan or whatever. It's probably contribu uh, contributions from all sides. But given that, and the market couldn't bear not only the price but the amount of crab that we fished last year, how do you factor in as a harvester that exact concept? Because if the total allowable cash saw an increase of 8.4%, but we might not be able to sell all that again, how do we approach that issue realistically? Because taking it out for the sake of taking it out doesn't lend to long-term viability for the species. Because five years ago, it was on the verge of collapse. That's right, exactly. And we took the cuts. We're 5A in Urbana Vista Bay. We took the cuts. First one, my husband and I bought, uh, we ended up with three quotas to keep viable, to keep in this industry. That's all he's allowed. And when we took the cuts, we were at 30-something thousand pounds. I'm not quite sure. He's not here. He's over doing a bit of maintenance. But we took the cuts, and, you know, we paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for these licenses, took the cuts to keep our crab viable, and ended up with, you know, half of what, not even half of what we had bought, per se. And, you know, the crab is rebounding. It's doing good. But if we were talking 90 cents a pound like we were many years ago, there was never an issue when we had 30-something thousand pounds per quota. For, you know, per shares we had, I think it was like 10,500 10, per share. Could be, you know, give or take. But when it was way back when, but now we're talking inflation. We're talking more fees. Patty, we're regulated. It's like every year we have new regulations. We have new fees. We have our insurances keep going up. Like I'm not calling I'm not calling to state, you know, we're poor fishermen. No, but we're hardworking fishermen that want a fair share. And we deserve a fair share. And it bothers me that our elected officials, federal and provincial, are in hiding. They don't have a thing to say about the fishery. So I'm calling each and every one of them out. Make an appearance, voice your opinion. The Newfoundland fishery, a billion billion dollar industry, you're willing to sit back and watch it go down the drain.
watching it. Like, they don't realise the chain effect that this is going to have. I wonder on that front, you know, because there's that fragmented authority jurisdictional, because DFO will set the tack and then the IQs roll out and then there's some provincial authority, you know, we're granting licences and what have you. So how disjointed it is probably leads to some of that silence. In addition to that, I'm not 100% sure how much ministers of fisheries provincially and federally have really understood the industry over the decades. So when you don't know what you're talking about, it's probably best to stay silent. Yeah, and that's exactly. We have the silent few in Ottawa, which I'm, I'm saddened to say, but I mean, they'll be looking for votes coming in, in you know, very soon. And they don't realize that this has this is a serious matter that we face this every year and they, they stick a Band-Aid on it and they walk away. No, we need a serious, we need a serious sit down and a serious plan put in place, a plan of action. Our fisheries minister, Derek Bragg, I don't even see him, you know, talking out about this or our own government. But, you know, we need more. Why aren't we allowed outside buyers, but yet they're allowed to truck crabbing onto our island? Yeah, that's an absolutely fair uh, critique of the current landscape. I've long talked about this and do not understand it. I guess it's simply to protect the processing sector because how many industries on the face of the earth don't allow the market to actually dictate what the price will be? If I landed my crab or my cod or anything else and there was a buyer there from Brazil, the United States, and Germany, Japan, and China, and Brazil, and they said, I'll give you three bucks, I'll give you three ten, I'll give you three fifty. Uh, you know, how is that not part of it? And I know the local processors would probably very likely get priced out of the industry in some part, but it's the only raw material on the face of the earth that is so carefully subjected and regulated where you don't get to maximize profit because most things in this in this world are worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for it. Not so much in the fishery. It's always been a bit strange to me. It, it, like I say, it's a struggle to get your fresh live product taken from you right at the wharf, but yet they can truck it in. I've never understood that concept. I'm calling out our Minister of Fisheries on that concept and our, you know, and our leader of the province. There has to be something done. You have to open up leeway. Yes, I know we have plant workers and truck drivers, but we also have fish harvesters with a lot invested into this fishery. If a young person came to me today and said, well, I'm thinking about entering the fishery, no, you run far away as fast as you can because there's nobody to represent you. There's nobody to encourage you to stay in the fishery. Uh, it's sad because this is, I love doing what I do. All we want to do is work, get a fair price for what we're doing, and do the job we love to do. I mean, this has been around for generations and generations, yet we take a hit every year. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the f- the fishery is important. No one disputes that. And yes, there's got to be some sort of balance so that you can have all sides of the fishery remain viable. But the raw material should be pretty much the driving force in all this with the opportunity to maximize revenue and profit. You know, they have changed the rules about uh, selling your product locally, whether it be to restaurants or what have you. What does it look like today for you? For instance, if I bring in some cod and I get it graded at A, and last year I think it was 62 cents or something a pound. But, of course, the individual out there who is you know, wanting to bring it home to cook it for this coming Good Friday, or it's a restaurant that wants to buy it directly from the harvester, how does that work today? I'm trying to remember all the different moving parts, but I'm kind of struggling here because you can definitely get more. Uh, per pound. Let's just stick with cod, for instance. You get way more than that if you took it to the roadside in the back uh, of the tailgate and sold it, or you went right to a restaurant and sold it. So how does that work, and how does that factor in? 
You you can do that, but I mean, then you have to think about your crew members that need income for the following winter. Will we fish or do things that we can get employed all year round? I know I definitely would. Like, but to sell your cod, we do sell some locally, but you have to weigh it back, and then you're paying to the Fish Harvesters Resource Center. Where you get a bill come for what you do weigh back. You're allowed so many pounds, but you are charged like for what you're weighing back to sell it locally. Yeah, I mean, I'm not in the industry, but I'd be curious to do that cocktail napkin math because that would drive exactly how I approach the season. I want to pay my crew. I want them to come back and fish with me, but I also want to maximize my IQ. Right. I mean, we need our crew, but our our crew are worried this year. They're all worried. So I'm putting out a call to all fish harvesters. Stick together. Stick to your guns. If we get a low price, support one another and tie up. Don't don't let them get away with it. We cannot get ra- if we get railroaded this year. God forbid next year because you're going to expect the same thing. We just want our fair share, like anybody else. Anybody who's working wants to be paid fairly. Hundred percent. Appreciate the time, Tammy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patty. You have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Here we go. That confusing, albeit important, and in somewhat convoluted industry. And she's right. I mean, when you open up uh, talking about the fishery, it generally does boil down to similar, if not the exact same issues year over year over year. I know it's not easy, and I'm always the first to criticize those trying to oversimplify complex matters, but I'm not so sure how much advancement we've made. All right, Christina, appreciate your patience. You're next to talk about the upcoming provincial championships in Don't Go Away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Christina, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Awesome. Thanks for having me on again this morning. Um, so this past weekend, the Newfoundland Labrador Cheerleading Athletics and LCA uh, hosted provincial cheerleading championships here in St. John's. And as a sport that doesn't get a ton of attention publicly, I thought I would call in to uh, maybe tell your listeners a little bit more about cheerleading and a bit of a recap of our very successful event this past weekend. Let's do it. Awesome. So at LCA, we have been around actually for almost 20 years, and we're a fully volunteer-run organization to promote the growth of competitive and recreational cheerleading in the province. And we do a lot of work to reduce barriers to participation. Um, And we have a dedicated coaching development role, for example. We work with schools and individuals to help get new teams up and running. We make the connection to Cheer Canada for training and safety requirements, which is a huge component of um, of athletics um, for a long time, but especially as of late. Uh, we subsidize training for coaches, travel to communities, the whole clinics, and you know really teach people how to get um, get a cheerleading team off the ground. Um, and in addition to all of those things, we also host uh, in-person and virtual competitions, which is super exciting. So I am not in the business of generalization, or at least I try not to be, but I think in many people's minds' eyes, when they think of cheerleaders, they think that someone must have had a background in gymnastics to be a cheerleader. Absolutely not. Okay, I thought... That is a common (laughs) thing. And gymnastics is a component of a cheerleading routine in addition to stunting, pyramids, and jumps, um, but there's a lot of athletes who learn gymnastics actually at cheerleading. Sounds about right to me. So, again, I'm coming from an uninformed position. That's why I'm asking these questions, which might seem quite silly to you, but I'm going to ask them anyway. So, for instance... No, not silly at all. Okay, good. So, I'm 
figure skating and I'm doing my long program and there are certain requirements that I have to hit. I have to do the couple of spins that are required. I've got to have at least one combo with a double triple in. Are those the same types of things that targets and uh, disciplines you have to hit when competing as a cheerleader or is it you choreograph your own routine and you hope that you've convinced the judges you're the best? Yeah, so I love that you used figure skating as an example um, because it is similar in that it is a judged sport. So there's levels one through seven in cheerleading, and then there are age groups from ages four all the way up to open open teens. Um, and yeah, so there is a standard rubric or a framework for judging. Um, so depending on the level you're competing in, um, whether you're a co-ed team or an all-girl team, um, different different things, there's different standards for each level. And then based on creativity and execution, um, you're judged um, judge on that perspective and judges are all certified. There's lots of training that someone has to go through in order to be a credential judge. So it is a very, um, it's a very detailed system that we use. I would imagine that would be exactly the case. So for the cheerleading teams or cheerleading squads, again, people will think that, you know, when you go to watch Duke play North Carolina, the cheerleaders, you go to watch the Cowboys play the Vikings, the cheerleaders, but it's not just cheering on a sport or an event. It's its own standalone sport that doesn't require a team to cheer on. Exactly. And that is what has evolved over the last, um, Number of years, I want to say the last 20 years in particular in this province. And yes, those are absolutely cheerleaders. Um, I know some professional sports teams um, more so call them games teams rather than cheerleaders sometimes. And they are absolutely there to hype up the crowd and provide entertainment. But all-star cheerleading has definitely taken on a, I guess, it's it's a beast in and of itself now. Um, It's kind of self-contained and there's, you know, there's 25,000 participants across Canada um, registered with Cheer Canada and over 400 programs. Um, and that's a, that's a lot of people. Just here in the province, we have um, over uh, 400 members with NLCA, and I would venture to guess over 700 um, cheerleaders. How many males? In Newfoundland Labrador. How many males? Because, How you know, again, when you look at it... Not enough. Yeah, fair ball, because when I look at some of it, whether it be standing on the the boy's hands or the base of the pyramid or what have you, it seems to me you need strong people, regardless of the men or the women. We're just curious how many males are involved. Um, now, I don't have that exact number, but I want to say we would love to see more male representation in cheerleading. Um, I know there's several programs in the province who do have... Um, do have boys in their programs and on their teams, but again, not all teams. And um, yeah, we absolutely encourage boys to, to join this sport. Um, I actually had a call from a, uh, a Ukrainian uh, yesterday who was using a translator on their phone and called me to ask about cheerleading programs for her five-year-old little boy. So I do hope he ends up getting involved somewhere too. Uh, quickly before I go to the news, so... Are there winners that we should be acknowledging here this morning? Yeah. So over the weekend, we hosted um, our first, I guess, more normal post-COVID cheerleading provincial championships at the St. John's Convention Center for the first time. And I just want to send a huge thank you to all of the athletes, the coaches who primarily are volunteers and teacher sponsors who make it happen. We had over a thousand spectators come. Um, We had 
an exhibition space. We had a fully equipped performance and warm-up space. Canadian Navy killed it on the stage lighting and music. And uh, Nicole and the team at the Convention Centre were just awesome in helping us pull off this event. And our first time in a new space, it was a great success. And uh, we are super excited to celebrate our 20th anniversary of NLCA uh, next season. Sounds great. Appreciate the time this morning, Christina. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. There we go, a little cheerleading weekend recap and some lame questions from yours truly. Oh, someone asked why I hadn't been talking about the St. John's Junior Hockey League playoffs when, in fact, we had Nick Hillier on last week talking about exactly that. He was promoting Game 7, which happened up at Bay Arena on Friday night, where CBN did indeed beat the Caps to take the series in seven games. Game 1 of the finals was last night. That's between CBN and... Yeah, oh, CBN uh, beat the Caps. So there was a triple overtime. Uh, Alex Crane was the hero. So there we go. There's your St. John's Junior Hockey League update. Quick check-in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there because it's St. John's Caps and Junior Caps. Anyway, we're, we're on Twitter. See if anyone's saying whatever. We're also taking your emails. It's openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, plenty of time to have you live on the program. That only means you have to pick up the phone and give us a call. And in the era of 10-digit dialing, the local number in the St. John's metro region, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. Welcome back to the program. <clears throat> Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of St. John's South Mount Pearl. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Thank you, Petty, and that would be Mount Pearl. Mount Southlands. Pearl Southlands, yeah, right. With Seamus, I just gave you Seamus' job. Sorry about that. That's all right. I don't want. I have no interest in Seamus' job. I'll just put that out there. Um, anyway, uh, Patty, uh, I, I just wanted to, I guess, uh, just chat a little bit about the uh, about the budget. Um, and well, first off, are you going to vote in favor of it? Um, I haven't totally made up my mind to be honest with you, but uh, right now I would say uh, I'm sort of leaning towards voting for it. To be honest with you. Um, and, and the reason why I say petty, and, and I think it's important to sort of, you know, when you look at the budget, you got to realize what this is, you know, it's a, it's, it's a financial, uh, document. It, it basically, you know, about where we're going to go for the, uh, for the next fiscal year. And, uh, you know, based on the revenues that are coming in, what we can afford. And it's all a balancing act uh, to a great degree. And I suppose it comes down to, do you agree with the fact that, government has reached a fair and reasonable balance uh, when it comes to the revenue coming in uh, and then sort of balancing that with the needs of the of the people in the province and, and I guess some of the wants and priorities and, and so on. And that's what it comes down to. I was sort of uh, sitting in the House Assembly uh, yesterday and, and watching, uh, you know, taking in question period, of course, and Listening to uh, a lot of the banter that, uh, you know, was on BOCM this morning back and forth about, you know, uh, I'm not voting for this and I'm not voting for that. And then the minister says, oh, well, then that means you don't support this and you don't support that. And, you don't. and this is all theater. I mean, look, the reality of it is, is that we know, uh, and to put things in perspective, that we have a majority government uh, in the House Assembly. So, you know, a lot of this is theater. Uh, all parties know that, you know, this budget is going to pass regardless. 
Um, so, you know, the opposition, the NDP and the independents as well have the opportunity to beat government up on everything that may not be there or some certain things that are there. And, you know, you can take this stand and say, well, you know, I voted against this budget because this wasn't it and that wasn't it and so on, knowing the fact that it's going to pass anyway. I wonder, it does make you wonder, though, you know, if we were in a minority situation, would members then be saying, well, I feel that the budget is so bad that I'm going to bring down the government cause an election? That, that, that would be a real true test of how you really feel about the balance and how things are achieved. Well, I've, you know what? That that's fair, and I mean, there is a certain uh, amount of theater that is accompanied in uh, inside of politics. But you know, with the PCs without a permanent leader and the NDP just applied the permanent tag to Jim Din, I don't imagine the government was coming down on this budget. No, exactly, and I guess that would be my point: is that they have the luxury uh, right now of sort of beating up the government on it criticizing everything and saying, like, I don't support it and voting against it, knowing full well it's going to pass anyway. And I guess that's my point around the theater of it and so on. And if everyone really feels the budget is that bad. Now, are there things in the budget, are there things I would like to see in the budget that are not there? Sure. Such uh, as? Like what? Short in some areas? Sure. I mean, I, I, I agree with the opposition that there doesn't seem to be a real plan around healthcare that certainly is not defined, even though the budget is really a financial document. But I don't. I have a, a sense that a lot of it feels like it's sort of piecemeal and 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 reactive. But at the end of the day, I think we all agree that the priority for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador and the main concern is uh, our healthcare system. And there's no doubt there's been you know a lot of money invested in healthcare. Uh, they have done some things around the cost of living. Um, you know, um, I, I agree, uh, you know, that the 5% on the seniors uh, supplement uh, is not a lot of money. At the end of the day, when you work it out in dollars and cents, I think the, uh, I believe uh, uh, Dave Brazel said it was like 6 bucks a month or something. Yeah, $72 uh, a, year. a year. And I mean, that's not even a budget item. That was announced last November. Yeah, I think it's more than 6 bucks a year. But anyway, whatever the amount is, it's not a lot of money. Would I like for us to do more for seniors? Sure. Personally, I think that uh, the feds are getting off the hook when it comes to seniors because I think we saw through COVID, uh, I think it was recognized that everybody needed $2,000 a month to uh, live and what seniors get comes nowhere close to that. So uh, I, I think the fact that the province is even having to put in these senior supplements and so on um, is a testament to the fact that the federal government is perhaps failing our seniors when it comes to the amount of money they received in OAS, CPP, and so on. And that's something that we should be advocating for more support for our seniors there. Um, but at the end of the day, Patty, like I say, there are some good things there. There are some bad things there. I, I'm, I, I do like the future funds. I do like the fact that the size of the, uh, you know, the, uh, of the um, uh, deficit in terms of the amount is starting to go in the right direction. Hopefully, we'll be at balance very soon, and we'll start paying down the debt. That has the part of the equation as well. It's very easy for us to say, you know, every group out there wants more money. I understand that. If you have uh, unions and different groups that are looking for money for, you know, for their members, as as so they should, uh, you know, you're going to get criticism about what about us? You're giving money to doctors. You're giving to the nurses. Uh, what about retaining us? Um, what about priority on us? And I understand all that stuff. Um, glad to see there was some mention there of some uh, 
hopefully some increases to home care uh, workers. That's something I think is desperately needed. Uh, the ECEs, the new wage grid, certainly for new ECEs, it seems like it's a positive. Although I have heard from uh, what you would consider a level two ECE, someone who's been there for a while who said that this really means like 600 bucks a year for this individual. So that individual would say it's a slap in the face and done nothing for me. So Just a couple of quick comments, though, Paul. So the deficit going in the right direction, $160 million this year. What does not get included in that conversation is that the borrowing requirements are still $1.5 billion. So it's sort of uh, difficult to understand how we arrive at some of those numbers. And the other one that you mentioned, too, that you like is the future fund. Okay, but for me, I think the initial money in was $157 million. There's $127 million in this budget. It's basically got a 10-year requirement to leave it there, unless it's for extraordinary circumstances and or to pay down the debt when the bonds come due. So for me, it just really feels like somewhere to park money because it has a very defined use. So while we're dealing with a net debt this year forecasted at $16.2 billion, which is almost a billion dollars less than the forecast a year ago, but we're just parking money to pay down debt, so I'm not really sure what that future fund means beyond that. Well, I think the government said it could be used for paying down debt or it could be used for some strategic investment if it were to come forward that made sense for us as a province. So I, I, I don't think there's, you know, I think the idea of setting some money aside for a rainy day when we really need it is not a bad idea in, in, in concept. And yes, we are borrowing money, which is obviously concerning, but one of the things we need to realize, and I haven't, you know, when I, I'll try to get a better handle on it, we get to estimates with the minister. But when people hear about borrowing year over year, uh, that borrowing is not necessarily, it may be partially, but it's not all new money per se. A lot of times you have these bonds that are coming up for renewal. So all you're doing is that you're borrowing uh, money in order to get a better rate on existing debt. So it's not necessarily take every time when you see, you know, we borrowed a billion, we borrowed two billion. That doesn't necessarily mean this is two billion more new money that's being added to the debt. Part of it or a lot of it could be existing debt that's just being refinanced. Yeah, that's right. They, yep. they came due, right? So, you know, I, I, I think, you know, trying to find, I guess my, my message is, I suppose, to people is that from my perspective, I'm trying to be fair. I'm trying to be realistic. I'm trying not to play politics with it. There are things there that I think are moving in the right direction. Uh, would I like to see more planning around some of these healthcare investments to really understand if you know we're going to get the value for the money being uh, uh, invested? Yes, I, I, I try to seek out that information and, and get some assurances there. Uh, but you know there are some good things. There's no new taxes. I would have liked to see the sugar tax gone. It's still there, uh, but beyond that, there's no new taxes. And uh, and and there was investments, as I say, in healthcare, uh, early childhood education, which is important home care. So, you know, when I get a full picture after we go through all the estimates and I listen to the debate and so on, I'll make up my mind then, but I have no intention of just simply voting against the budget just for the sake of saying I voted against the government because, uh, you know, there's nothing in it for me. I'm an independent. Uh, I don't, I'm not looking to form the next government or bring this government down. Uh, any more than I would be the new government, whoever that might be next time around. So I'm just trying to do what's right by my constituents and trying to, uh, you know, have an honest assessment of the budget and uh, realize that there's going to be winners, that, you know, everyone's not going to be totally satisfied with everything. 
It's all a balancing act. And if I feel that there's been a fair balance there, then I'll support it. And if I feel there's something totally outrageous that I cannot support, well, I won't. Appreciate the time, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. That's Paul Lane, independent member, Mount Pearl Southlands. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one, Chris, you are on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How you doing? Not too bad. But I took a stroll down Water Street there last week. I know this Mary Brown store was gone. But anyway, there was a store opening up there. And I don't want to say the words because they're too derogatory, Patty. But when you get the chance, will you stroll down Water Street and you have a look? And then perhaps tomorrow or something, you might probably talk about that. I know what it is. But anyway, it's a very derogatory name, and I don't think it's appropriate for the downtown area. And the reason why I'm calling because I live in the area. And I phoned my MHA, and I never got no response, but that's no surprise. I'll probably see him on election day, or probably a week or two before election. That's fine. But anyway, Patty, uh, I don't have much to say today. I'm a little bit more relaxed than what I was talking to you the last time <laughs> about what happened in the Northeast End, or I was a bit riled up about that kind of stuff. And what was that again? Remind me. Oh, that was the time that they invaded that 88, 90-year-old man and woman. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. And one of those guys pled guilty, and the other guy's holding out, right? That's that case? Yeah, that's the one. But, but anyway, like... Uh, at least things are simmering down in that degree now, it seems to be. There's not so much crime on the go, but there is a, a fair amount of crime on the go still, which is sad to see. And I only spoke about that to you a few months ago, about some of the things that were going to happen in the future. But anyways, I suppose that's her no there. But anyway, Paddy Boy, if I could tell you the name of that restaurant, you'd be appalled. I know what it but is. Anyway, you're going to see it. I'm sure you're going to be curious to go down and find out. But I already know what it is. Oh, you already know. Yeah. What do you think of it, Patty? Well, I don't think I'm as put off as you are, to be honest with you. I know some people will be displeased. There's a reference to fat in it. Uh, that much we can say. Actually, the name of the restaurant is Fat Bastard. Okay. Yeah. So let's get it out there. And that's yeah, not the... Yeah, as well, eh? Yeah, why not? And that's not the only uh, product in this world named exactly that. There's actually a line of wine that's named that as well. Yeah, well, uh, wine is okay, Patty, but like in the area, that's the problem I have with is the area. If that was on the back of town somewhere, well, maybe it mightn't be too bad, but there's going to be people drinking down there, and that word is going to be said time and again. And just the wrong person just might be going up the road half drunk, and what's going to happen then, Patty? I don't know. I don't know either, but I can tell you, I can put I can put one and one together, right? You know. But anyway, uh, it's uh, it's. Uh, I don't think these words should be even used in the our vocabulary, Patty. There's some words that are already taken out, and look what they did with some of the baseball teams and the hockey teams, Patty. Remember they they changed the name to them. Why did they do that, hey? Well, I think there's a long way between the Washington Redskins and this particular restaurant or the Atlanta Braves or anything well, else. And some of those teams uh, still exist with those types of names that some people find offensive and are suggesting should be changed. And again, this, you know, I'm not part of any of those minority groups that would be potentially offended, like whether it be the Chicago Blackhawks or otherwise. I mean, well, it, it give me the it definition of a bastard, Patty. Yeah, what about it? Well, what's the definition of it? 
a fatherless child, I guess, right? That's right, exactly, Patty. That's right. And like I said, I don't think whoever put that out in circulation, you know, should be made take it out. Because it should never have been allowed to go into society. If we're trying to make society better, Patty, I don't know if that's the right way to go, Leo. Well, I don't know, but it is curious that you bring it back to the original definition of the word because it used to be just a very fundamental word that was used to describe an, an individual. Then it became a curse word after the yes. fact. So Yes, and it was named on animals as well, not only humans. Well, they're fatherless, okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. We'll but see anyway, what kind of reaction. The, uh, the, people vote with their, and they decide how they're going to spend their money based on what they make, whether it be the product, the service, the name, the intention, all of those things. So we'll see if it comes back to bite them, or maybe it'll be enticing to some. I have no earthly idea. Well, Patty, by foresight is everything in my mind, right? You know, like, uh, if you can see something before there's a disaster, I think you should speak of it. And that, that includes every Newfoundland Labradorian and Canadian, too, as well, you know? And uh, that's about all I had to say, Patty boy. So I'll see you around and all the best to you and your family. Take good care of yourself, Chris. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, first impressions are one of the absolute keys inside of whether it be you applying for a job or a business and how they present their product or how they name it or who's the front person for the business. For some, it'll be, eh, whatever. For others, they may indeed be offended. But then, of course, that's the chance many businesses will take, right? Whether it be the line of wine that I mentioned, it also has the same name of that restaurant. For some, it might be a bit of a jarring revelation when they see it, but that doesn't mean that they might not pick it up and give it a shot. Now, for others, it might be automatic rejection because they may indeed uh, think it's too much, or gone too far, or whatever the case may be. But I guess whoever are the business owners behind that particular project They've made some sort of evaluation as to how they think that will go over. There is, I think, a school of thought in the world of marketing that a little bit of shock is not necessarily a bad thing for the purchasing public. Again, you can, without question, go too far and alienate a significant percentage of the population that won't do business with you. But for others, a little bit of shock might not indeed be off-putting. It may indeed be enticing. That's all. So I'll leave that up to you as to how that name resonates in your ears or your family or your pocketbook because that's the ultimate determination. They'll know very quickly how that's working for them, I would suggest in short order. And what kind of feedback they actually get, you know, face-to-face. If someone walks in and says, I like it or I hate it. Anyway, final word this morning very likely goes to line number one. James, you're on the air. Yeah, Patty, I'd just like to uh, follow up on what the last caller was talking about the when he referenced the term bastard yeah um it has several different meanings other than what you discussed one of them is when it comes to uh different files metal files uh oh. and and how how each file is referenced differently they're numbered by bastards and there's a, like a bastard file so it's it's several different meanings and i think you know, people's attitude just turned towards the negative when they, when, they, when they hear the word, right? But it has several different meanings. You know what? Now that you say that, I, I knew that because I saw someone. I used to watch a bit of Forged in Fire, for instance. And there was a guy who they had these interdisciplinary challenges. One guy was talking about the rasps on a file and said that exact thing on the show. Now that you mentioned it, I remember that. Yes. Yep. So I just wanted to pass that on this morning there, so... You know, you got to have a fat bastard file, too, as well. 
<laughs> uh, fair enough. And, you know, sometimes we also put it on the heels of lucky, right? Congratulations, you're yeah. lucky. And so yeah. it depends on how people hear it. And, you That's know, right. it means different things to different people. If I'm a blacksmith, maybe my mind goes directly to a file. If I just want to cruise, maybe yep. it's I'm the lucky one. And if I'm talking about the yep. wine, maybe I like that brand of Pinot Noir. So that's an excellent point, yeah. James. I'm glad you called. Yeah, not a problem. I think people need to take a deep breath sometimes and sit down. Appreciate this, buddy. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Yes, now I just, if he hadn't said it, I would have probably not recalled that. But there was whatever competition on Forge and Fire. There was the blacksmiths versus the sheet metal worker versus the knife maker versus whoever. And one of the guys who was a blacksmith, I guess he was a blacksmith, and talked about the work that he normally does and even some of the types of files that they would use very much unlike some of the knife maker tools, what have you. And he did talk about the rasps on a file and said that exact word. And if I remember correctly... One of the judges kind of, you know, sh quickly shifted her, his uh, glance towards one of his compatriots as if, oh, my God, listen to that word. But, of course, like many words, what it really boils down to, I think, for most is that you know how it's intended. If someone means malice by using one word or another, we can all tell it. We know it when you hear it. And if someone uses it, for instance, in that sentence, Cong congratulations on the victory, you lucky, you know what, then... That came across as well-intentioned and congratulations. So like most words in the English language, which is an extremely tricky nuance, difficult to use and learn language, all of these different words and where you put them in a sentence and what you mean by them at a specific uh, moment in time and the company you keep and, you know, some, some references might be acceptable in your social circle but possibly not in mixed company, you know the deal. So that's, that's how things work in that particular world. So... And again, if you are put off by it, I'm just maybe not. Because <laughs> uh, I guess I got other things in this world to be put off by, but so be it. Your opinion is exactly what makes the show and the world go around. If you were on either side of that fence, you know what to do. All right, final check of the day on the Twitter box. Would like to say something, not only for a final plug for the Avalon Celtics 50 50, which is going to be a great prize and a lot of great initiatives will be supported by your generosity. And if you don't buy a ticket, you, can't ha you don't have a chance to win. Also, this morning, we're pleased to announce that uh, Exile, the restaurant at the Jag Hotel, has come on as the title sponsor of one of the marquee minor hockey events of the calendar year. That's the Avalon Celtics Under 9 Invitational. So pleased to have Exile on board. That's going to be a great event. It always is. All right, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye. <laughs>